Thank you for listening to the Conform to Christ podcast, where we seek to engage the mind, affect the heart, and call people to follow Christ. I'm Jay Jones, and I'm here with a special Free For All Friday, as always with George Mays. Hey, George. Is it not always special when I'm here with you, Jay? It's, a spe- it's extra special extra today. Extra special. And we have a guest today, Robert Harnden. Robert Harnden. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, on the phone today for this special Free For All Friday. And uh, we'll we'll try to do a little switching back and forth and see if we can get your picture up so people can see who you are. Can we throw, can we throw that up there? The handsome Robert Harnden. Uh, uh, so uh, Robert um, is a pastor in Missouri. We won't we won't uh, go specific. I guess you're a pa- you're a pastor in Missouri. I've known you for a long time since back in our seminary days. And uh, this free for all par- Friday will be interesting for some people because what we're going to cover is a trend that's kind of going on in the Southern Baptist world, which is pa- uh, churches turning against their pastors and trying to fire them on the charge of Calvinism. And that just happened to you, Robert. So we'll talk about that. And then we want to go through there's a document that they passed around against you. Um, I, and I don't want to, what we don't want to do, I don't think, is try to like throw these people under the bus <clears throat> that have done this. But I think it's worth getting this out there because it's you're like the sixth person I've heard of this happening to. One of them sitting right across the That's table right. from me uh, <laughs> here yeah. in uh, the wonderful George Mays. Yeah, and, and I, you know, I, every summer I go to a, a pastor's conference in Arkansas, and it is called the Preachers of Grace Conference. There's a bunch of, of Calvinistic Baptist pastors, mm-hmm. and a lot of them have gone through the same thing, and you listen to their stories, and... Some of the details are different, but it's just the same pattern. Yeah. It's the same pattern. Yeah. And so you, uh, we'll hear both of y'all's story, and then, you know, I want to, what, what I think we need to do is is try to just ask, I want to ask Robert some really, like, straightforward questions, because, you know, there's the straw man that's probably been built around him about Calvinism, so right. I want to just give him a chance to say, what explicitly does he believe? And then um, go through this document, because I think the document... Is uh, like Christians shouldn't conduct themselves in this manner, because what it is, you know, the straw man. You build a straw man, and then you burn down the straw man. Well, the straw man doesn't represent actually what any Calvinistic Baptist really, really believes. Um, I think it's filled with half truths and some outright lies, which we should never engage in. Now, I'm not saying that they did this on, uh, on purpose. They may actually believe this is what Calvinism is. They probably they probably actually believe this is what Calvinists believe, but it's not. I told you the other day I, I had a I had lunch with a local pastor uh, once here, and uh, he uh, he sits down. He's like, "Yeah, well, well, you know, I just I just Calvinism is you know I just can't get on board with it because here's what I believe. I believe this about you know." God's offer of salvation, and I believe this, and I believe that. I believe this, 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 and I just can't get aboard. And I said, yeah, I believe all of those things, too. <laughs> and he's like, what? And I was like, he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, I believe all those things. You just you just described you know, what I believe. I believe other things that you probably don't, right. but I believe all those things, and he's, he couldn't believe it. Yeah. So what, what people need to do is actually interact with Calvinist and read read their material and not you know, go to these uh, crazy, like, websites and download stuff or whatever's being spread around. I I, I actually think DOMs spread this material around. Um, mm-hmm. 
that are that are like old school SBC, not knowing what they're spreading around. That's that's my uh, my little conspiracy theory for you, George. Right. Well, I I think that what also needs to be talked about, and I, I mean, we could talk about this for hours, um, but just some things for people to think about. It's it's obviously not just about Calvinism. Right. Well, there's a yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions about Calvinism. That's true. Um, a lot of lies. People Google stuff. I mean, I was looking at this document, and you know, a lot of these these arguments that they're making are have been answered hundreds, probably thousands of times mm. by people smarter than than us. And I noticed that one of the uh, one of the articles that they brought up <laughs> was by someone named D. Paul Walker. Who studied at self-educated? Like these are the <laughs> these are the these are the experts that they're yeah. expert witnesses. But there's there's you know in my own um, circumstance, the people couldn't even pronounce Calvinism. Mm-hmm. Um, they were conflating it with Roman Catholicism, which is the craziest. Which is conflation. like the exact opposite <laughs> of what we believe. I think there's um, I think there's ecclesiology. Pro- yeah, that, that's what it problems comes down to. going on. Um, I think that they also are are missing um, the seriousness of this. Mm-hmm. Like there, there's this idea that the pastor is like the hired hand. Yep. Like he's the employee. We pay him to do a job, and when he doesn't do the job the way we want him uh, to do it, we fire him. Yeah. Instead of understanding that the pastor is a member of the church, when you're bringing these charges. It's church discipline is what you're doing, mm-hmm. um, and they don't want to follow Matthew 18. And if you're going to bring a charge of church discipline against a pastor, then you better it better be serious, mm-hmm. right? And you better lay it out biblically, right? Like a, a, a hard case biblically, yeah. And then you better give him time to defend himself, mm-hmm. right? As much there's, time as needed. There's a process right. for church discipline, mm-hmm. um, and just because it's the pastor doesn't mean that. All of a sudden, you can treat him immediately like, like an unbeliever, right? And um, excommunicate him because that's what happens. Yeah, the, the firing, the quote unquote firing, uh-huh. is excommunication for the pastor. <clears throat> All right. Well, let's let's talk about uh, just you can be in in general to Robert, but I think it'd be helpful for people because there's repeated patterns in all of these. And then George, maybe you can chime in as uh, you see uh, the same patterns mm-hmm. of what happened in yours. So the pattern, I'll start yeah. the pattern off and because uh, the pattern begins a certain way. Then, then Robert, you <clears throat> jump in and tell us your story. So here's the pattern. Church isn't doing yeah. well. Church isn't doing well. Church has mainly old older people. They don't have any young people or children. Right? It seems that the younger families in town are not interested <clears throat> in coming to our church. So the deacon board and personnel committee and whoever else, they say, when we go, when we have a pastor search committee, what we got to do is we need to, we need to find a young pastor with children, because a young pastor with children will bring young families into this church. So that's what they do. Mm-hmm. They find themselves mm-hmm. a pastor. And everybody wants, right, the pa- a pastor that's got seminary education. That's going to mm-hmm. be a problem, too. Mm-hmm. I think the more these churches hire seminary trained pastors, yep. um, and so they hire a pastor. Everybody always says, "I want expository preaching too." So that's what happens, right? Yeah. They're like, "I want a, I want a young pastor, kids, expository preaching. We got to have preaching of the word at this church, brother." And then <laughs> um, what happens is over a year, like after a year, honeymoon's over, year maybe two years, and then they realize like. Uh, well, this isn't all that we maybe want. We're bargaining for. Then something will be the tip, probably church discipline related, 
and then that kicks it off. So, Robert, go ahead, bud. Tell us your story. <laughs> well, you uh, you read my story. Um, uh, the church I'm at is in a suburb of uh, the biggest town on the western side of the state of Missouri, um, a smaller community, a rural community, farming community, um, not many young families. They wanted a seminarian to come in. As you said, Jay, you and I went to seminary together. Um, I took every, uh, I think you may have more expository preaching classes than me now that you have your your doctorate, but at the time I took every expository preaching class that, that, um, that was offered at the seminary. And that's really what my focus was. So I came here, brought my family down, and started preaching and started preaching through the book of John. And I just really wanted to build um, a gospel-centered church, and I wanted to start on a gospel to build a foundation of a ministry here, really to start from scratch and just build up who Christ is to these people. Um, started preaching on Wednesday night through Exodus, on Sunday night through Revelation, and that's what the people were asking for. They were they were intimidated by in times, and I had preached through Revelation before, and I have a little bit different view. I'm, I'm a millennial in my study, so I knew that would be a point of contention, but they actually didn't fight that too much. And um, so, anyways, well, probably because most of the people who went against you didn't come to church on Sunday night. They they don't they don't. Most I knew of it. The deacons, I knew it. <laughs> most most of the deacons don't come. We had a couple that would come pretty faithfully to the Bible studies, but most and, and granted there are a couple that work still, but most of them are just are retired men and don't come um, for whatever reason. And so through time, I, I realized even when I came down here in the interview that I had mentioned the word elder. In the meeting with the deacons, I came down and I mentioned the word um, elder to the deacons and well, I got a call the next day and I thought everything was going fine. And I had a deacon say, you know, the word elder, you mentioned the word elder a couple of times when you were talking to us. And if you're wanting to take the church to elder led, this is going to be a problem because we wouldn't be interested in that. And I thought, well, what in the world's the problem? I mean, elder is a Bible word. And I explained to them my view on what the Bible says about elders and deacons, and I was kind but, you know, firm that, hey, this is what the Bible says, and, you know, I'm not interested in moving the church right away to elders, but yes, this is my understanding that, you know, Paul tells Timothy to appoint elders, that the elders are the, are the you know, God-qualified and, you know, trained men to lead the church scripturally, and deacons are the servants. So I knew right away that there was going to be a concern with the leadership of the church. So that's and kind of— that's kind of your first sign that uh, the deacons may have a un unbiblical view yeah. of like the role of deacons and the role of pastors. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so as time went on, we you know we run into COVID. I come to the church right before COVID starts. Um, I got COVID October of 2020. We had a breakout in our church of about 15 people within a week and a half that got COVID here. Two people ended up passing away who were related to people in the church. So people in the church got COVID, took it home, and then their relatives died uh, is what happened. Um, in fact, Jay, I think around that time you came to Kansas City and we're going to come over to the church and said, yeah, I think I'm going to wait. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um, COVID was running crazy through our county. We decided to mask for a while in the in the, the deacons meeting. And I, we all agreed unanimously to mask for a while to keep the church open. We didn't want to close. 
and you know we can get into the politics of masking and obviously we understand that it's not foolproof and all that but it's generally a good idea not to sneeze on people you know if you can keep those particles closer to yourself and not make a big cloud great so within two weeks i had half my deacons taking their masks off in church so so they just they just generally went they, they went back on their word and i called them out on that and so it quickly became clear that the office of pastor was was not respected, um, that they could say they were going to do one thing and then do something else at this church. And I called them out on that at the next de- deacons meeting. And very quick, and, and that just the relationship started to tank at that point. They had never been <laughs> called out like that. They're the rulers of the church. Um, and it just never really recovered. Yeah, I read, I read, all, I read your constitution and bylaws, and the yeah, way the way yeah. it reads, it reads as if the deacons, you guys have deacon rule in your church. Now I don't know. Oh, we I, do, and I mean in such a fashion to where you're bare, you barely qualify to be a congregational church. Absolutely, there, there, there would be, and I mean this with all respect to any Presbyterian mm-hmm. listeners, there would be, they would be Presbyterian uh, deacon rulers for, um, yeah. for sure. And um, so during this time, of course, I'm preaching through John, and, and we do hit on some sovereignty verses, you know, John 1, 12, and 13, John chapter 6. We're, we're getting ready to go into John chapter 10 now, but I never, ever, ever say the word Calvinism from the pulpit. Um, I certainly agree to the doctrines of grace. Um, Jay has watched my transformation over the years. Apparently, I called him one time early in the morning before preaching on a Sunday at like 6 a.m., uh, fretting over a verse <laughs> yeah, yeah. in Ephesians. So what's interesting about this whole, this whole thing, man, is that you uh, you were, I would say, rabidly anti-Calvinist. <laughs> That's how was I was. Was I rabid? Yeah, dude, you were. We, we used to, like, argue with each other all the time. Yeah. It was probably yeah. something, dude, because you and I both are, can, can get a little hot under the collar. No, mm-hmm. I mean passionate. Mm-hmm. Let's say passionate. Like sure, I don't think I don't sure. think we have like uh, we we never got like sinful with each other, but no, we but never. we definitely argue. And what's funny about it is like we would go hunting together. We're like shooting ducks. Ducks fly by. Pow! You know, dog goes and retrieves <laughs> it. Sit back down. Okay, so can you really believe that, Robert? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, and then those, we go I back to those. and then we sit there, you know, discussing this theologically. Mm-hmm. But we became good friends uh, at seminary, and yeah. And to either one of us, this is this issue is not something worth dividing over, or dividing a church yeah. over, or uh, yeah. or losing friends over. And no. so you you were there, and then interesting to see how you came come came around. Sorry, I just had to insert that. So yeah, no, you, you well, called I, you called me on a on a Sunday morning real early one time. Remember that? Well, because I was you know I I, I do I do I'm starting to have recollection of that, but I you know Southern Baptists are all I've ever known as far as Christians really. I mean. My dad was Roman Catholic. My mom was reorganized Mormon growing up. So my background is way wacky. I mean, my mom used to tell me if I tried to keep the Ten Commandments, I would go to heaven. I mean, that's that's my spiritual upbringing. And when I heard the gospel from a Southern Baptist best friend of mine, and then, you know, I went to a Southern Baptist church in high school and then in college a few times, I, I went to a lock-in. They tricked me. They said that I was going to get to play GoldenEye and eat a lot of pizza. <laughs> But really, it was a bunch of Southern. Ba- it was really a bunch of Southern Baptists getting these kids in a room to have them watch a Jesus film and give them the gospel and uh, the old bait and switch. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a bait and switch in in Kansas. And um, 
but so Southern Baptists are all, are all I've ever known. But but I quickly latched on to John MacArthur right after I got saved because I somehow watched a sermon of his at Grace Church in California. And I was just drawn to the preaching. I had never seen anything like that. It was different than my local pastor. And I was just, I was hooked. And I quickly understood that he was saying something different than my local pastor was. But I started to quickly be warned about John MacArthur, about this Calvinism word, and I didn't even really know what that was. But there was this Calvinistic guy at our church, and people were picking on him and making fun of him. And, you know, when I got called into the ministry, my my uh, preacher took me and a friend in a side room, drew on a chart on a whiteboard his explanation of what quote unquote Calvinism was and said, when you go to seminary, you need to watch out because you're going to meet these people that are Calvinists. And this Calvinism is problematic. So be careful. And this is at a, you know, a 300 person Southern Baptist church in my hometown. And I, so I went into seminary with my guard up. But then I started meeting people like Jay and my preaching professor and all these other men who were godly, who were kind, who weren't even as argumentative as me. And they were Calvinists. And I'm like, wait a minute. Not all of these men are mean and evil. And the caricature of Calvinism that I had been taught just started to erode. Um, at the time, I was big into Norman Geisler because someone had turned me on to him into his sort of anti-Calvinism materials and books. I remember Chosen But Free, reading it cover to cover. I have a, He came to Midwestern. I have a signed copy <laughs> of that book, um, and, and I still appreciate him, but I even remember a professor you know, kind of making fun of him when he was there um, in the class. So, um, But really, it was through listening to the word, just being troubled by passages that no matter how I tried to explain away or how author tried to explain away, and really, it was a couple of years of listening to verse-by-verse uh, verse Bible study that Steve Lawson does, and he did through Romans the entire book on Thursday morning down at Herb's Coffee House and down in uh, Texas that I was just – I couldn't fight it anymore. And Romans eight twenty nine and the golden, uh, golden chain of redemption, I was just – I was just destroyed, and the Lord finally got me, <laughs> and um, – and I, you know, I just, I'm hook, line, and sinker. I've, I've believed in the doctrines of grace. And once you, once you come to understand them, it's kind of like being born again, again, and it's everywhere all over scripture. And it's in John, and it's in Ephesians, and it's in, you know, it's, it's all the way in Genesis. And I don't, I think that I'm gentle with it when I preach it and teach it, because I remember being, being me a few years ago and fighting and pushing and kicking and really at our church, it's just been used as a, as a weapon by deacons, especially a few who are mad at me for other reasons. And that other reason really is about starting to enact church discipline. And that, yeah, that started <clears throat> with, with calling a deacon's wife into my office for saying racist things in our church. And once I called her into my office, <clears throat> he started to turn up the rumor mill um, about did, me. And now, the, didn't this person uh, claim to uh, be a to believe the doctrines of grace before this point? Yeah. So when when my when my when I first came here in view of a call, they had open questions to the congregation after I preached, and two guys who are no longer here, who weren't even Southern Baptists and weren't members of the church, asked, "Are you a five point Calvinist?" 
and at the time I was a you know four and a half pointer. I mean, I was I was right there. Is <laughs> probably where I would be. I, I just I was I was Calvinistic and didn't even know it. And um, they were embarrassed that these guys were questioning me. The deacons were just because this was the pastor coming in, and they didn't want me to be embarrassed. And when I got in a room and tried to explain, because one of the deacons said to the other deacons, he said, look, we're going to have Robert explain what Calvinism is. And he said, Robert, in five minutes or so, could you kind of explain to the deacons what Calvinism is? And I go, uh, okay, that's a pretty big <laughs> ask. Um, so I had them open their Bibles to Romans 9 and tried to do the best that I could with flying through Romans 9. And so some of the deacons said, I don't know what these two guys' problems are. And the, and the one deacon said, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. They, they think that they can believe, but they're, but they're dead. You know, they're dead in their sins and their trespasses, and they can't just believe. So he's, he's basically, you know, explaining total depravity, that, that God has to do this, this regenerating work before they can come to faith in Christ. So there's been hints at and, and, and things they've said to me, this deacon and his wife over the years, that, that, that he said, you know, I came from a church that, that believed this way, the preacher preached that way, and it was never a problem for us. And I'm going, oh, okay, you know, good. He's, he's not going to be a problem for the pulpit. You know, he's not going to cause trouble. Well, as soon as I call his wife into my office for saying racist things, for being cantankerous, for being aggressive with me and other people in the church, all of a sudden in a deacon's meeting, he says, you know, the, the problem of Calvinism is, is becoming a problem in the church. He tells the other deacons that. Well, wait a minute. You, you, you believe this. Why would you say that? Well, well the reason you're saying it is because it's another arrow you can shoot at me. Yeah. Well, he probably never believed it, but he wanted to be close to the guy who's yep. about to get hired. Sure. Know, so. Yeah. And so, so yeah, that's a, that's a that's a that's a very condensed view of of what's going on. And and then so the rumor mill starts, and and I have deacons who literally in one meeting four weeks ago said, I go home and read everything Brother Robert preaches again and compare it with the Bible, and he's never said anything wrong. And then two weeks after that, that same deacon is the one asking for my resignation because Calvinism is splitting the church. <laughs> it's just, it's, it's incredible the switch that can happen. Yeah. So they began to campaign against you behind the scenes is kind of what you discovered. You don't have to go into great t detail on that, but that's usually what mm -hmm. happens. Um, mm -hmm. they won't, they won't ever be out in the open. It'll be secret. And, and then they, right. they, uh, put together this, like somebody put together documents and we're spreading them around explaining what Calvinism is and how, you know, how bad and how evil it is and how it's not Baptist. That's one of the things that's in right. here is Calvinism is not Baptist. It's not Southern Baptist. It's not the history of the Southern Baptist Convention. So we'll, we'll deal with that in here, here in a second, and then we'll move through this document. So they, they rally, they uh, call a special meeting, and the, you thought the charge was Calvinism as heresy. No? Isn't that what you thought at first? That's what they told you? Yeah, well, they, they presented in the meeting that your Calvinistic views and Calvinism are, are, are causing people to leave the church. And we, and the deacon who spoke, spoke and said, we believe, I believe that Calvinism is going to split the Southern Baptist convention. He said, I'm unhappy with Midwestern seminary with Southern seminary and the, and Albert Moeller, the president of Southern. Now, obviously, you know, Southern Baptists understand there's always hot button issues with, 
are institutions of higher learning. But by that, he doesn't mean critical race theory. He doesn't mean wokeness. He means Calvinism. Yeah. I was going to say, he, he means. he's upset with Albert Moeller. Uh, yeah, join the club. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, but he means Calvinism, right? So, right, right. And, and, you know, and I tried to explain to him, and they keep mentioning the 1963 um, – you know, Baptist Confession of Faith, like somehow it's the document that we're subscribing to now and that it's, that it's not the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And I've explained to him a hundred times that, you know, Article 4, as Jay has mentioned on salvation, says that regeneration precedes faith. Mm-hmm. That if God doesn't do a regenerating work in your heart, you're never going to come to a place of faith because they just believe really, as an Arminian would, that you could just la-di-da, and anyone can just conjure up faith in God. Well, that's not what our Baptist Faith and Message says. <clears throat> right. So so my understanding is that they're saying that they're at odds with the Baptist Faith and Message and with the Southern Baptist Convention for reasons of soteriology. Yeah. So, well, I would, and then I would also argue um, your Constitution and bylaws are at odds with the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, because they've made yeah. themselves the uh, elders and overseers of the Church. And uh, mm-hmm. and I read your constitution. It says that the Baptist faith and message is the statement like that governs your church. Like that's your statement right. of faith. So before we jump in, though, Robert, to this other stuff, to kind of the theological, like we'll 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 address this document. You see any parallels, George, in your story? Uh, yeah, uh, a little bit. Um, the um, the the structure of of uh, Northwest Baptist. Um, where I was here in Lawton um, was better, I think, than what Robert's talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it was more, it was more congregational, but of course, it was also deacon, deacon led, mm-hmm. um, and so there were there were problems there. But um, I, I think the big difference is that you came into your church telling them that you were a Calvinist, or at least they were asking you. About well, it. two people, yeah, two people who weren't members. Right. These guys are just younger and like yeah. reading, mm-hmm. but they came from a Church of Christ background, and one was married to a deacon's wife, and the other one was friends with the guy. Yeah, they both left immediately. I mean, one was pumping King James only material okay. and wanting to make Christians feel bad because they didn't, you know, have the KJV. And, right. and I'm and I'm pretty loyal to the New American Standard. And, you know, if you use any modern translation other than, you know, like say a message or just some some paraphrased garbage, I'm fine with that. But I'm not going to let anybody, you know, feel inferior in our church. So I told them that and they just were gone. Mm -hmm. But none of my deacons, none of them, none of them knew what Calvinism was. Yeah, I um, so I came in. The the search committee never asked me about Calvinism. It never came up. We had a um, we had a, a, you know, Q&A with the congregation. Uh, on the Sunday that I came out to preach in view of a call, uh, it never came up. Um, they asked about the Baptist faith and message, and I told them, "This is this is our standard. This is what we're. This is our statement of, of faith. This is what I believe. This is what I'm going to teach." Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't, and and so later on, two years later, the the charge was that I I snuck in. Right. That I I deceived mm-hmm. the church yep. um, by not saying yep. that I was a Calvinist. When they didn't ask, right. it, 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 I mean, if you've got if you've got <clears throat> concerns about a certain theological um, position, the search committee or the Q and A, that's the time to bring it up, right? Right. Yep. 
Um, but did not, they ask not two, you? Not two years later. Did they ask you if you believe the Baptist faith and message? Yeah, yeah. I, and you they, do. Which you and do. I, and I said yes. I yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, this is this is our this is what I believe. This is what I'll I'll teach. I will teach in accordance with the Baptist faith and message two thousand. Which I'll, you came to discover later, there are several people that don't believe that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. There was yep. there was some problems in that in that regard. Yeah. yeah, but the the issue of Calvinism didn't come up. What I found out later is that the director of missions um, down here had actually contacted the director of missions from the the church I was at previously, and had discovered that I was a Calvinist, and he still recommended me to the church. Mm. Um, he told the music minister at the time, and the music minister knew I was a Calvinist. It never came up in the in the search committee or the Q&A. It was only, goodness, it had to have been a year later that um, chairman of the deacons came and asked me if I was a Calvinist, and I explained it to him, and he said, okay, and didn't have a problem with it. Um, the, the chairman of the deacons, he did not have a problem with my Calvinism. Right. Um, but it was other issues later other, on. Other issues, yeah. Other issues later on mm-hmm. um, that uh, that started to become a problem. And uh, in a similar way, it, was, it kind of kicked off with church discipline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also we had a, we had a landmarkist here. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people that don't know, a landmarkist is someone that believes that um, you can trace Baptist churches all the way back to the apostles, mm-hmm. to John the Baptist. Um, there's been an unbroken line of succession of, succession of, mm-hmm. of um, Baptist churches. Baptist churches are the true church. Uh, so he was, um, you know, if you're a Presbyterian, you're not part of the true church. Yep. Um, he was pushing King James only. Um, so that was an issue. But he was always pretty cordial with me, but uh, his wife was not that's always <laughs> yeah she, always she actually she actually came into my office i'll never forget the day that this happened because it was the day that my my uh my sister had her first child <laughs> she came into my office screaming at me um over calvinism mm. so uh she screamed at me and uh, then i left to drive to tulsa to <laughs> be with my family mm. so I'll, I'll never forget uh that uh, that the anniversary of this lady coming in and and screaming at me. That's her, that's her uh, lasting gift to me. <laughs> uh, but this guy, he actually, uh, he was starting, well, it was, it was really her. She really was the one starting the problems. Yeah. It's all, it's, it's usually the case. He, he was always very cordial, but uh, the deacons called him in for a meeting um, because they recognized that there was, there was problems. This guy and was he, a big money giver, right? Oh yeah. Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, man. he was the, he was the, he was the guy with the most money. So here's the sad thing about the the condition. A lot of the churches, if that guy's just a regular dude yeah. that, uh, you know, he drawn disability, doesn't even work, gives 50 bucks to the church a month. They don't even care what he says. Yeah. They don't t- you know what I mean? But because of the threat, right? Is, oh dude, this dude leaves. We're going to lose a ton of money. Yeah. And but, uh, but this guy, um, he uh, he came in and and he said that he believed that the five solas, uh, which I'd been vocal about the five solas because I, I think that it's just biblical Christianity. It's well the five the five the five. If you don't believe the five solas, you're not a Protestant, right? right. Um, it, well, right. he he didn't believe that. I mean, he's a landmarkist, so he didn't believe that Baptists were Protestant anyway. Okay, all right. Um, uh, but he came in saying that he 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 believed that the five solos were were um, just a sneaky way of of getting Calvinism into the church, and he he told the deacons um, that he didn't believe that we're saved by grace alone. 
uh, that you have to do something. And I looked at I looked at him and I looked at the deacons and I said, the problem is not Calvinism. <laughs> we got we got deeper problems than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the deacons actually asked him to leave the, the church. Mm. Um, in retrospect, we should have done church discipline on him um, to try to win him back. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, mm-hmm. and uh, dealing with you know a lot of problems. Yeah, but uh, anyway, they they asked him to leave because they recognized the problem. Yeah, uh, was that he didn't believe <laughs> that we were saved by grace alone. Right. Um, which, uh, at least to their their um, their credit, the deacons believed that we're saved by grace alone. Um, they just didn't want to take it to its logical conclusion mm-hmm. um, that we're saved by grace alone <laughs> that God, <laughs> that God's grace is what saves us, not our free will, um, not, our, not our decision. It's, it's God's grace um, right. in graciously electing uh, people and saving them through the blood of Christ. Uh, but uh, you know, rumors, rumors were picking up, but really the, the, the thing that really set it off was um, he left this, you know, the guy who was given the most money mm-hmm. Um. So budget budget problems. Yeah. So they were starting to have to cut cut salaries, and um, so we just me and a, a couple of other people started asking, well, why don't we at least have a discussion about merging with uh, with Jay's church? And uh, that's that's what set it off because the chairman of the deacons wanted his control. Yeah, yeah. Um, because and, when, yeah. when I and when we were I, elder led, right? When I talked to him about elders, he came into my office one one day, and he said, "I see it in the Bible, but we're never going to have it here." <laughs> and then he walked out, and I was just speechless. <laughs> like, okay, what does I mean? He just told me that he he wants to be openly rebellious against God's word, right? Uh, but he he stormed out when uh, when it was when that topic of merging was broached uh, not even i mean again we're congregational it's not one person can make the decision the church has to decide right and we're talking about i mean how 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 many months did we talk about the merge before we actually did it i mean we're 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 talking months right yeah but at that point you guys were like uh, getting close to just shutting down uh, maybe not shutting down because we own the building right uh, but not being able to pay like yeah like having the having to get another job you were getting wrapped together um, and they didn't different... they they you know they the chairman of the deacons um he didn't want to cut my salary at all yeah. like he was willing to cut everyone's salary except mine mm-hmm. um which i mean that was nice of him but i wasn't going to have that because right. i had you know there's other people that are depending on their salary too why should they be the yeah. only ones taking cuts um but uh he stormed out he stormed out and left yeah um and it seemed like he was kind of holding back the flood and right. so when he left, um, that's when they um, decided they were going to get rid of the pastor. Yeah, yeah. So they they brought up the charge of uh, of Calvinism, uh, but what was funny is that most of them couldn't even pronounce it. Um, they uh, they char they charged me with uh, there had only been two baptisms is what they charged, which I don't even think that was right. But they ignored the fact that that um, fourteen people had joined in the two years I'd been there. Uh, and probably younger, and younger pro- people, and probably no younger people had joined in years right. before that. Um, right. 
uh, they didn't. They thought that I was trying to let another church take over, um, and they were just ignoring the fact that all we were doing was saying maybe we should have a discussion right. about it. Um, we <laughs> so so we had we had these. Oh, and uh, I preached too long. Yeah, you preached. Too I long. preached too long. Oh. Uh, yeah, so uh, which hadn't been a problem for uh, for almost two years. Yeah, um, until all this other stuff, and then all of a sudden, I'm preaching too long. Well, they got to have stuff to throw out there, right? Um, but it, so it, it wasn't even Calvinism was just it was just kind Something, of a cover, right? It was yeah, a cover it was a co- for it. it was a cover for what was really going yeah. on. Um, because I, it, you know, when they started saying you snuck in, you you deceived the search committee uh-huh. by not. You know, just coming out and saying, "I'm a Calvinist." Yeah. Um, and I wasn't four and a half. I was I was five plus. Right. <laughs> when I came mm-hmm. in, um, I was uh, you know, John Piper, seven point, seven point Calvinist. Um, I started wondering, did I did I sneak in? So I went back and started looking at my early my earliest sermons, and I didn't use the buzzwords. Because as I, I, you know, as as you you know as well as I do, they don't know what Calvinism is. Like you can see from this this document that we've got in front of us that they didn't they don't know what what Calvinism actually is. They've got their straw men. Mm-hmm. So if I would have said I'm a Calvinist, they wouldn't have even known what I was talking about. I would have just been speaking jargon. Mm-hmm. Um, then like they would Calvin, the funnies in the paper. Then they would have <laughs> then they would have then they would have Googled it and yeah. come up with all kinds of crazy right. nonsense. Um, but I was, I was teaching it like I was teaching the scriptures. Uh-huh. Um, I wasn't, I wasn't shying away from words like election or predestination. Um, I, I was teaching it. It wasn't until they, they heard the word Calvinism that they started having problems. Yeah. I was teaching, I was teaching the doctrines. I, uh, I hit, I looked at my, uh, the sermon that I preached when I came in view of a call and I hit on all five points mm. um, because I wanted, like if there, if there was an issue, I wanted it to be addressed. Um, but no one, no one had a problem. Right. And people actually, I, I still have notes on my desk from people that were just raving about how great the sermons were and how blessed they were to have me here. And I keep them there to just be a reminder. Right. Don't, don't believe the hype. Right. right? Yep. So, um, but uh, they didn't have a problem with it until the term was used. Right. And then all of a sudden it was right. Calvinism is destroying the church and well, you snuck in. And yeah, and... I think, I think in the common thing that I see between you guys' stories is a disgruntled, a disgruntled woman. Honestly, and that's not yeah. that's not an uncommon thing. I remember back in my leadership class long time ago, uh, a pastor who had been around a long time, like fifty years in ministry, he said, "Most problems in your churches will be caused by um, rebellious women mm. and cowardly men." Yeah, and I think you can see that in both stories. Mm-hmm. Probably what happened with yours, George, is with that lady. She's the one who. I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but began to dig up stuff on Calvinism yeah. and then to spread falsely what Calvinism uh-huh. actually was, right. not what it actually, you know, because people were hearing your sermons before, they had no problem with it. Right. Now all of a yep. sudden, you know, they leave, and of course when people leave, they don't stop talking. Yeah. They talk to everybody oh, yeah, else, yeah. and they try to get people to leave with them. Yeah, yeah, yep. I look I look back, I, I preached through Malachi, I mean, you, uh, the, the first sermon. Yeah. Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. Like, yeah. we dealt with it. <laughs> the the very first um you know 
book that I preached through. I preached yeah. through First Corinthians. Um, it's it's all over the place in yeah. in Corinthians. Um, I I taught through the Baptist faith and message on Sunday nights, and yeah. we we dealt with the article on God's purpose of of grace. Yeah. Um, and I laid out what I believed <clears throat> without using the term Calvinism. Yeah. No one had a problem. Um, it wasn't until almost two years, almost two years that that the problem started. You're right. And and then the other common, I think, link would be a deacon or deacon board that. Yeah. Wants to maintain power. Bad bad ecclesiology bad, again. Bad going ecclesiology. back to bad ecclesiology, it's uh-huh. the the power resides in the congregation uh-huh. ultimately, not in deacons. And these deacons, they're functioning like elders. Yes. So even when even when this you know this deacon came in and said, I see it in the in the in the Bible, but we're never we'll gonna never have, have it. it he didn't recognize that they already were functioning as elders. Right. They were calling themselves deacons, but they weren't doing the work of deacons. They were doing the work of elders. Yeah. Um, and so just bad ecclesiology, just just biblical illiteracy. And uh, we were talking about this um, a couple of days ago, I think, that uh, there's a lot of self-righteousness also. Because one of the charges, um, I'm, I'm sure you had this charge too, that, that Calvinists don't evangelize, that there's not people joining the church, we're not having baptisms. Um, and what these people are are trying to say is that we we do evangelism, but you don't. Yeah. When in reality, um, they weren't. Right. There's there's a reason why people aren't joining the church, and it's not the pastor's fault. Yeah. And um, if, it's it's because people aren't aren't doing the work of evangelism and inviting people to church. Yeah. Um, it's not the pastor's. It's not the the pastor's job to get people to come to church. Right. Yeah, um, when you look at the uh, you know the Calvinist versus the other side, whatever debate, that's always <laughs> something that's a, a right. bomb that's dropped. But yeah. if we can be honest, when we look at the statistics of the Southern Baptist Convention, we're uh, one step above infant Baptists because right. the majority, the the main strategy of evangelism is to is VBS, mm-hmm. like that's the that's the big one. Yeah. Uh, so you go after children, and then the other yep. one would be like youth camps. But uh, yep. apart from that, there is not a big evangelistic effort to even try to reach adults. And I'd say, like, you want to reach adult yep. males. You reach adult males, then you're going to reach the family, uh, or you should. Um, but there's no bi- there's no big push like that. People aren't like doing evangelism to adults. What they mean by that is like you don't you don't do a VBS and have altar calls and try to get these kids. And I remember I was head of VBS at a church up there in Kansas City. DOM comes in. First thing he says, well, how many how many baptisms we got coming up? I'm like, what do you mean? How, how many decisions we got in here? I'm like, oh, uh, none. What do you mean? I'm like, well, I'm not. I, I said, I told him, I was like, I could get every one of these kids in here to to uh, to make a decision. That's 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 uh, that doesn't mean like that's not. I don't even know that that's a moral thing to do. Kids are very impressionable. And they will do things if they think it makes adults happy. But that's the whole strategy, man. And we can see how it's not sticking because these baptisms aren't sticking. <laughs> like mm-hmm. like SBC kids at like the rate of like 75%, when they leave the home, they never return leave to church. The they get, they're gone. Yep. Bye-bye. Um, so there may be a flaw in the theology. Just maybe, right? <laughs> All right, so there's that. There's the commonalities. Okay, so... 
Let's should we should we be should we just like list what what do we mean by the doctrines of grace in case people are listening and they're like I, I maybe heard this term Calvinism before but I need someone to okay. just tell me because we don't want people who've never heard it to go Google it because you'll come across you know uh, trained at self educated. Um, trying sure. to tell what Calvinism is. I think a lot of problems that people have, uh, you mentioned it, that people don't want to actually have the conversations with an actual Calvinist. Yeah, we are. No, we they, are when we get to this document. They, yeah, they want to... they, want they have to, Tulip listed here. Okay. They they actually, you know, they, they want to uh, they want to hear what Calvinism is from a bunch of anti-Calvinists right. instead of hearing what is Calvinism from Calvinists. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, we're for sure going to hit them all yeah. as we go through here. Okay. But before we do, I just want to ask... Uh, I already know the answer from you, George, so you don't need to answer. Your church knows. The, even better, your church people know what you believe. But, Robert, I just got to ask you this. Okay. Robert Harnden, do you do evangelism? Yes. Okay. All right. So you mean you— I didn't know where he was going with that. You, you mean, you mean, you're, not, you mean you're not a person that says uh, God, God saves whoever he's going to save, so I don't have to evangelize? No, that would be that would be poor theology, unchristian, um, irresponsible, sinful, and that's just a caricature that people throw against Calvinists. I don't yeah. I don't know a Calvinist who thinks that way. I don't either. It, you know, uh, we got to be careful of too many people coming Cal- Calvinists. We wouldn't want to spark another missions movement, you know. So, <laughs> right. w- William Carey was a Calvinist, started the modern missions movement. We wouldn't want anything crazy like that to happen. So we got to keep it out of our churches. Well, I think that's another area that we need to at least touch upon oh, because the because sure. the uh, be, well the question uh, or uh, the accusation is, and we see it in this document here, is that that Baptists aren't Calvinist. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think we need to. I mean, oh, we'll we could just list. We're going <laughs> to get start to that, listing George. listing people. First up on the on the thing is that we're uh, on their document. Yeah. So second thing, do you believe that when you uh, do you believe you should give a free offer of the gospel indiscriminately to all men? I, I give a free offer to the gospel at every every single sermon I preach. Okay. Do you believe any single person within earshot of that gospel sermon, if they will come to Jesus, that Jesus will save them right then? Yes. Okay. I, I don't really know what we need to do the rest of the podcast for. All right. We're done. We can, turn, right, we can for, turn it off. Thanks for joining. <laughs> Yeah, and and you can and you know people can go back and listen to uh, to my sermon from Second Peter three, mm-hmm. um, and kind of understand um, our position. Yeah, yeah. And I'll even say that the rumor mill started about me. I even heard that Brother Robert only gives invitations at the end of his sermons because he was forced to. <laughs> and 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 I'm and I'm going. Have you people not realized by now that nobody forces me to do anything here? <laughs> I mean, the deacons asked me to leave, and I said no. I mean, you, you, you think somebody forces me to do anything in the sermon, Robert? I wish, my, I wish we could stick you. In a I t- said no. I wish we could do a time capsule, and they could go back and see us arguing with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jay couldn't even force me to do anything in seminary. I mean, it was it was no. But I wanted to touch on something real quick, not to go back, but. The, the the first two pages of the document that I sent that were spread around, I uh-huh. went to the office of our church, and a deacon's wife n- wife's name was uh, sticky noted to a copy of a rough draft of these documents. So yeah. a couple pages up in, so it was a deacon's wife who was at least helping to put this packet together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, uh, you know, I, I want to just address this because there's this idea that, that because we don't do, um, we don't do a quote unquote invitation mm -hmm. at the end of our, our services. And, uh, that's, that's even been, um, a sticking point for members of my own family, because that's what you do. Like right. you, you, you preach, then you give an invitation and you invite people to walk the aisle. Um, and I think that what needs to be understood is that if you're preaching a text correctly, which means it's immediate context, mm -hmm. and then what does it mean in light of Christ and the application? You're going, every sermon is going to, you're going to be preaching the gospel and you're going to be calling people to come to faith in Christ. Right. And what I see in a lot of um, non-Calvinist, now I, I don't want to make like a blanket, like every every non-Calvinist is doing this, but just from sermons that I've heard, is that the sermons usually are topical. They usually um, use the scripture just to prop up, you know, whatever they want to say. And then they tack on an invitation at the end without ever explaining the gospel, without ever talking about Jesus. Right. They and don't. and what what are they actually inviting people to do? Right. They haven't they, Right. They haven't they haven't explained the holiness of God. They haven't talked about the seriousness of sin. They haven't I I've, I've listened to sermons where the pastor hasn't even mentioned the name of Jesus. Right. Mm. Um and they're they're having this invitation. Right. Um, what, what who are, are we, you? what are we telling people to do? Who like, are what, you? Yeah. Yeah. That they're without this explanation of the gospel there, there, you can tack on whatever you, you can call it, whatever you want, but yeah. it's not, what are, you're not actually doing, um, what, what needs to be done for people to come to faith in Christ. Yeah. Um, I remember in my church planning track back in the day. I had to. Uh, there was a, a popular church planner in Kansas City. His church was growing really fast. So if your church grows really fast, you're doing everything right, right? So I have to had to interview, have to interview the guy in person. But I had to watch a sermon before I interview him, and he preached the law, mm -hmm. like he's just preaching law. Yeah. And he's not preaching the law in order to get to the gospel and show right. how supreme Jesus is. Mm -hmm. He's preaching what we would call moralism. Yeah. Right. And it's he's preaching another gospel. It's it, and it's, then at the end though, George, he gives an invitation, uh -huh. and like three people came forward, and he said, <laughs> "You know, come forward and accept Jesus." Yeah. And I'm I'm thinking in my mind like, what Jesus? Yeah. Like what are you? What are they accepting? And you just told them that they can do it themselves, right? Like what what Jesus are you accepting? Yeah. It's um, so so and, bizarre. And if if um. If the only time that someone can come to faith in Christ is in a, at an you know during an invitation time, and if you don't offer the invitation, well, they they uh, you know they're just not going to come to faith in Christ. That's not a genuine conversion. George, I was born I was born again during the middle of a sermon on Philippians three, mm. with no mm. invitation. Mm. How did how did how did that possibly happen? <laughs> All right. <laughs> now now when I say born again, I mean going from being a skeptic, agnostic, um, nihilist even, a nihilist. I'm going to church with my wife because that's what we do, mm -hmm. to being born again. Yeah. How does that happen, George? Right. You just used your own free will, Jay. Yep. I, I guess I did. <laughs> Amazing. All of a sudden you came, you came to, uh, you came to your senses and, uh, you were smarter than the guy. You were smart. You. Yeah. You just, <laughs> figured it out. Yep. I was smarter than my than myself uh -huh. like 2 seconds ago. Yep. 
All right, so let's jump in this document. Here's how it begins, and we'll get into some of the stuff you want to talk about, George. It it talks about—it says the Southern Baptist Convention organized in 1845. There were five traditions represented. The convention settled on the Sandy Creek tradition, and it discounted Calvinism, and it emphasized evangelism. That is the doctrinal foundation of most Southern Baptist churches. Their heritage is not Calvinistic. All right, Giorgio. That's wild stuff, my friend. <laughs> that is what we call historical revisionism. Right. Yeah. I um I actually I don't even know if you'd call it a sermon so much as maybe a lecture on Calvinism and Baptist. Um back when I was, you know, starting to hear the rumors and people were starting to say, Well, you can't be a you can't be a Calvinist and a Baptist. And so I just started looking through this this stuff. Um <laughs> And um, let me see if I can find it. Oh, here, here it is. Okay, so we have to understand the, the history of, of Baptist. So Baptist started in, in England um, in the, uh, the 1600s. Yeah. Right. Um, and there were two streams. There was the particular Baptist and the general Baptist. The particular Baptist were the Calvinists, mm-hmm. and there were the general Baptists who were Arminian. Like free will Baptist, like free will Baptist, right? Um, and uh, the particular Baptist, they uh, they have some confessions of faith, uh-huh. so we know what they believed. Yeah. So we've got the first London Baptist Confession of Faith that um, came out in 1646, um, and then we have the second London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. Uh-huh. Both of these are are Calvinistic, explicitly. Yeah. Explicitly Calvinistic. Now you come over to uh, you come over to America. And uh, I wish we had the video, but it is what it is. Um, <laughs> I've got the uh, I've got the Philadelphia Baptist Confession of Faith. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this because you can say Benjamin Franklin actually. What is on video? Oh well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Benjamin Franklin he actually um, printed this. He did. Yeah. Now he didn't believe it. But... He didn't believe it. He just they used his printing press. <laughs> yeah, but he pre- but he he printed it. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, the uh, and it's. The 1689. Mm-hmm. It's just the 1689. Well, what's interesting is when the Southern Baptist um, Convention was founded in, in 1845, there were 293 delegates. Okay. All of them came from churches that either affirmed the 1689 or the Philadelphia, okay. which is the 1689. They all, they all came from Calvinistic churches. All right. So are you telling me that all of these Calvinists came together and they said, let's, let's put together a confession of faith that isn't Calvinistic? <laughs> Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> like they decided yeah. we're not going to be Calvinist anymore? Sandy Creek, George. Yeah. <laughs> that was their battle cry. <laughs> the, first, uh, the first president of the Southern Baptist Convention was uh, a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. And um, the first seminary, the Southern mm-hmm. Baptist Theological Seminary, is Calvinistic. All of the founders of um, Southern Seminary were Calvinist explicitly. Mm-hmm. The um, the Abstract of Principles, which is the that's it's the confessional statement of the seminary, uh, is Calvinistic. Yeah, you have to be at least you have to be yeah, at least a four pointer right um, to affirm the the Abstract of Principles, mm-hmm. um, and. Uh, so th- we've got this this stream of Calvinists yeah. uh, that lead up to the Southern Baptist Convention, and I hate to break it to people who are not Calvinist, who are anti-Calvinist, 
but one of the heroes of the Southern Baptist Convention was a Calvinist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lottie Moon. Oh, George, you just... <laughs> the, you shouldn't have gone there. But <laughs> now they got to take an offering every year in remember that in they're rem- that, yeah, in a remembrance of a Calvinist. A Calvinist. Oh man! How, but why though, George? Because she did like missions and stuff. I know. So you can't. I know you can't. I you mean, can't be she, right. she must have. You can't she be must right. Have, <laughs> yeah, she must have just been um, completely contrary to her theology. They would they back in the day these churches today that would never have sent her out. She actually I I didn't know this uh, but she actually used uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism to evangelize children over mm. in China. Mm. <laughs> like and I said, I like I said, a... <laughs> a lot of these churches today never would have sent her out. Yeah, no, they yeah, have, right. They would have fired her. Um, it. Uh, that's history. That's, that's called. Uh, that's called not being a historical revisionist. A uh, a survey, a survey by an early American Baptist historian in 1793 found that 956 out of 1,032 Baptist churches in America were Calvinistic. Like the like the 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 stream of Calvinistic theology in Baptist churches, that they were the majority. Right. Like the overwhelming majority until. Yeah, there was always, I mean, the Sandy there, there Creek, was, uh, the Sandy yeah, Creek right. tradition was there. Uh, yeah, there, there certainly were non-Calvinist, right. but uh, the point is that the Calvinists were not just a small minority; they were the overwhelming majority. Yeah, until I, w- I would probably say I, I'd have to look at it closely historically, but it seems like after World War II, the Sandy Creek tradition kind of uh, began to take over. Well, the uh, Herschel Hobbes, maybe it was. I, th- um, I think that it. I think that it. Um, you can look at the Second Great Awakening uh-huh. and um, these revivalistic preachers. Okay. That's. I think that's when Calvinism started to fall out of fashion. All right. Because people started to look at the numbers, and okay. they started to get infatu- infatuated with the numbers, and so they started using pragmatic. Like that—that's where the—that's where the anxious bench came from. That's where the invitation system came from, which Charles Finney. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1833 is when the New Hampshire uh, Confession of Faith, um, which is the—that's the starting point of the Baptist faith and message. Yeah, that's where it came <clears throat> from. Mm-hmm. That's—that's that's when. Um, the, the doctrine of election and predestination started to be softened. Okay. It wasn't it wasn't made as explicit as yeah. it was in the sixteen eighty nine and the Philadelphia uh, confession. So what kind of has dominated though since I think for the past century since World War Two, and especially with the popularity of Adrian Rogers, like he was the dude. Right. It just boomed. Yeah, where almost I would say it became the dominant stream would be uh, what we would call not Calvinist churches. Now here's the interesting thing because the pro- it's the like pro- the th- and we keep saying non non Calvinist because they don't label themselves. Right. Like it's hard to it's hard to even pin them down because they won't label themselves. They're well, not they're not Arminians because well, that's they, what I was going to say. This is like relativity. They because they are like if you ask a, an Arminian, right? They are Calvinist. Yeah. Because they hold to they eternal hold security. To eternal security. So right. they'd be like they are. But if you'd ask a Presbyterian, mm-hmm. they would say we're not Calvinist, yeah. <laughs> even though we're five point Calvinist. Because we don't baptize. They'd be like babies. you don't baptize babies. You're yeah. not. Pre- you know you don't have a presbytery. Yeah. They start to list all these things. Yeah. Um. At least you know the free will Baptists. They're at least full Arminian. Yeah. Um. But the Southern Baptists that are non-Calvinist, it's hard to nail them down. Right. And mm-hmm. um. There's. 
they go to different extremes. I mean, you look at the, you know, the quote unquote traditional, the traditionalist mm-hmm. um, that appeared, you know, what, not even 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, they, uh, they've modified. They're, uh, they're like extreme. Like they're, they, they are, they're borderline heresy, they if, are not, the, if not heretical. Yeah, they, e- even, uh, even a famous um, Arminian yes. um, has said, you guys went too far. Yeah. Because they've totally done away with total depravity. A classical right. Arminian, um, they believe in total depravity. Mm-hmm. Now they discuss different ways of um, getting us beyond that to where we could choose salvation. Like Arminius himself yeah. would say, and I, I should have brought this material in so you could hear him in his own words, but total depravity means you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead, cannot respond to the gospel. Yeah. But when you hear the gospel, God like elevates you back to like a pre-fallen <laughs> state like Adam, yeah. <laughs> and in that pre-fallen state, you can then choose or reject Christ. Now that was the cl- that's the classical Arminian position. I'm oversimplifying it, but there is total depravity. Um, there's also the doctrine of election. That is, a set number of people are going to be saved. Arminians believe that. Okay, there's a set mm-hmm. number of people being that are going to be saved. They just believe foreknowledge is different than our understanding of foreknowledge. Yeah. But then, <clears throat> then you come to like Wesley. He modifies with prevenient grace, but he still acknowledges total depravity. He just says, when Christ died and re- rose from the dead, he secured for every man a provision which enables them to respond to the gospel. Again, an oversimplification, but mm-hmm. that's what he says. So now anyone who hears the gospel can respond, but that's because Christ has done a work to escape total right. depravity. The traditionalists are like redefining total depravity, yeah. and they're redefining election mm-hmm. to mean something that no one has believed for 500 years. I don't think they've believed it for almost 2,000 years. Well, I'm just saying I mean, from the Protestant right. stream. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Protestant stream. Right. No one's ever believed this stuff. No. It's like new. Yeah. 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 Um, so just looking at the uh, the the history of, of Baptists in general and, and the Southern Baptists in particular, um, Calvinism has been um, widely accepted. Yeah. And even with the Baptist faith and message, which was put together by Calvinist yeah. and non-Calvinist, they've come together and said, we both can affirm this, mm-hmm. to say that Baptist and Calvinism can't, you know, can't mix is just completely ignoring everything. Yeah, it is. Like, it's completely ignoring history. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the executive committee, do you remember the, the advisory board on, on Calvinism? Yeah. Uh, that was years ago. They, they put out their report. Mm-hmm. Or the Southern Baptist Convention saying we have significant differences, but we can still partner with each other. Yes, they're not enough to they're not enough to tear us apart. And there's attached to it are statements from all the members of this advisory board, Calvinist and non-Calvinist, mm-hmm. saying we can work together, even though we disagree on these things. And these are important things; are significant things. But yeah. we still can we still can work together in the convention. Right. Um, so I just want to. A lot of churches, a lot of churches like Northwest, where and yeah. where Robert is, uh, they are ignoring all of this yeah. while still trying to be ca- um, Southern Baptist, while ignoring everything that the Southern Baptists have said about Calvinism. Yeah. Let's. I want to clear one other thing up so for George and Robert. Do you guys believe non-Calvinists are Christians? Yes. You say again, Robert. 
Did you say I yet? would say not, yes. Not he said yes. Christian. Yeah. Yes. And you, you, George. I mean, I would. I'm gonna. I'd put some clarification on there because yeah, I, I, me I mean, too. I would. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be so naive to say that every Calvinist is a Christian. Yeah. I, right. I, well, I mean, you know what not, I mean. But you're that's... not right. But you can. You can hold. You can. You what can. A... You can disagree with my interpretation of Romans nine and be a Christian. I guess what I'm trying to say is. Are people welcome in your church if they don't hold to your th- to your theology? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah. You too, Robert. Yeah, same thing. We've yep. had we've had non-Calvinists join our church. Yeah, I've never I've never made that. Um, you know the. You know the this is this is what you have to affirm. Right. Um, the what I think that you have to affirm is the five solas. Yeah. I think you have to affirm the five well, solas. Any any classical Arminian can affirm affirm right. those. They yeah. all did historically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the five points of Calvinism, I think they're correct. Um, I think that you're you're missing something when you when you deny them. Okay. But I don't think that oh, by denying agreed. by denying them that you're not a Christian because you're saved by Christ alone. You're not saved by Christ alone plus the five points of Calvinism. Well, let's get into that because we call the doctrines of grace. People call the five points of Calvinism. It's listed here in this document, and then they try to compare points to compare between Calvinists and traditional Southern Baptist. I guess they might have had some traditional website or something for the traditionalist where they downloaded some of the stuff. I don't know. Well, they they have the uh, they have the poinsettia on page two. Is that is that their poinsettia? And that thing? Uh, that's uh, that's an invention from uh, Robert's hero, Norman Geisler. Where's the poinsettia <laughs> thing? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's the bottom of uh, the second page. Oh, I see it. I, uh, I mean, if you're going to come up with uh, an acrostic, maybe poinsettia is not your. That's not the best. Like, I. Well, they're poisonous. I don't even. Them, right? <laughs> I don't even. I don't even think I could. I could spell poinsettia without looking at it. Like that's not a. That's not a helpful mnemonic device. <laughs> at least with tulip, yeah, you can yeah. spell it. But poinsettia. That's. Uh, that's pretty inventive. You know what's Election fun? Election available. What's that's the re- that's a redefinition right there, buddy. <laughs> Election is available. What, what does that even mean? What's funny about oh. Norman Geisler? Because when I when I you know I grew up in a just a Southern Baptist church. Um, I, I I don't I never heard about Calvinism, mm-hmm. and uh, it's <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't tell the story. Anyway, I'll tell it anyway. Free for all Friday. Yeah. So I was I was dating a I was dating a girl in high school. She was a Presbyterian, and uh, someone at my my church asked me, "Is she a five point Calvinist?" That's the first time I'd ever heard the word. Like, I have, I have no idea, and the guy didn't explain it to me. Like, I have no idea. I have no idea. You're just asking me. You're asking me. I'm I'm uh, like a, a senior in high school, and you're asking me this, and I have no idea. And I'm pretty sure, like looking back, she wasn't. But <laughs> George, I'm just. I'm that's just... the o- that's the only time. That's the only time that I I'd ever heard the term until after college. Yeah. And then I was confronted with it when I started hearing John MacArthur, um, R.C. Sproul, uh, John Piper. And I started looking into it, but like a good Southern Baptist, I didn't want to be a Calvinist. Yeah, uh, I put <laughs> I pushed back against it. My my in laws, my in laws, my my in laws are not Calvinists. Um, they uh, they do not like Calvinism. Uh, I think they've softened a little bit, um, which has been gracious of them uh, on their part. You know, not to <laughs> always be fighting. 
uh, with us over this, but um, they they didn't like it. So I was pushing back against it. And where did I I turn to? I turned to Chosen But Free mm-hmm. uh, with Norman Geisler. And what's interesting about it is that he labels himself as a moderate Calvinist, mm-hmm. and then he lays out an Arminian <laughs> theology. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, confusing, but... it's like what is this? What? Yeah. Uh, it's not. It's not a great book. Yeah. Like even even when I was pushing against Calvinism, I was like this. This ain't great. Yeah, there's yeah. like he's looking at passages like Romans nine and just jumping through hoops to try to get around what it seems to just be clearly stating. And uh, but I, I just find it funny that he he always called himself a moderate Calvinist, even though he didn't yeah. hold to any of the points except um, eternal security. You mean so the so, so what I'm most surprised in this story, George, is that you didn't kiss dating goodbye. That's when that was a big fad. Yeah, yeah. Well, I read it. And you were like, this is nonsense. I read it, and I was like, meh. You, you read that, and you had enough discernment to know books written by 18-year-olds? <laughs> I didn't know anything about Joshua Probably Harris when I read that. Probably great to follow. Yeah, I didn't know anything about him when I when I read it. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> we're chasing rabbits now. This is a free for all, right? Yeah. Uh, when we were when when Julia and I were dating, her mom actually gave her, <laughs> I guess, dating goodbye. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, just a little subtle hint, I guess. So let's jump in here then to these five points. We call right. them the five points. Um, the doctrines of grace. So they have it here listed as Calvinist has ba- five basic tenets. A little it's, bit of a, a little tulip, bit, a, a little bit of a historical side note is that um these didn't come from calvin Mm -hmm. like he he taught these but he didn't systematize them into Mm -hmm. these five points um it was actually the arminians um following the teachings of of uh of arminius yeah that had their five points yeah against um the reformed understanding of election and predestination and salvation um it it was the uh, it was um, the the uh, we, Council call, of Dort. we call them Calvinists now mm-hmm. that uh, that re- were responding mm-hmm. to the Arminians, yep, um, and that's what turned into the five points. Yes, actually, I, I think the I think the um, the Council of Dort actually only had four. Okay, because I think they put two of them together. All right. Well, let's let's go through them. So, number one is total depravity. Now, total depravity is the traditional name. I prefer I prefer to use like a lot of guys like Sproul, radical depravity. You going with the rulip? Uh, you know, I, I don't destroy it. Rulip, rulip, destroys it. Yeah. Well, because total depravity, it, it it helps create this straw man, I think, yeah. in people's minds. Yep. Meaning that. You think that people, all they do is sin as bad as they can all the time. Yeah. And that's not what it means at all. Right. Radical depravity. Um, so th- the important thing is we'll describe what they mean, and then we'll kind of go through and say, are they biblical? Can mm. we show you right now, using the Bible, that these are biblical? Okay? Radical depravity means that the fall right, has so corrupted man that of, of man's own... Uh, will. The will is so bound by sin and entangled in sin to such a degree that even when presented with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the will bound by sin will always choose sin and choose rebellion against God, and thus is unable to respond to the gospel, 
not because of anything that God that there's that God has done in man. Man has a mind, man has ears to hear the gospel, man has a will. The problem is is not is one of the will. It's that their will is bound and so they never will respond. That's the radical depravity. And so thus we need a rescue out of that radical depravity, that corruption of sin. Sin has so entangled us to where we will not choose God. Now the question is, is that biblical or not? Okay. Um, the traditionalist or the other side, according to this document, um, they do not they they do not believe that. They say in this document, which I don't even know if this is a good one. Um, <laughs> That repentance and faith are the means by which God saves someone and God is received. So that they would believe that the fall has not so corrupted the will that a man is not able to respond to the gospel. There's a difference, right? Now the question is, guys, which one is biblical? Not which one is historical, which one have Baptists held the most for the longest time. The question is, which one is biblical? Which one? Where would you guys go to prove radical depravity? Could you prove it in the Bible? Yep. Yes. <laughs> I'd, I'd go to Romans. Uh-huh. I'd go to Romans. Okay. Uh, and, I, and I think even what? John, uh-huh. Jesus' words in John chapter 1, Jesus comes into the world, and the world doesn't want anything to do with him. Mm. He's, he's all over the place, and the world says, nope, they don't, they, don't, they don't know him, and he goes to his own people, and his own people don't receive him. Right. Yeah. And, and anyone who's born again, it's it's of the will of God, and it has to be because the people don't receive God, mm-hmm. and they don't because they're radic- they're radically engulfed in sin. I mean, like our like like our preaching professor used to say in the hall when I was fighting all of this, just listen to the words of Jesus. What does Jesus say about all this? Yeah. And it's I mean, if if the, the Prince of Peace is in front of them and they don't want him, you have to ask why that is, mm. and it's because they're jacked up in sin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So. Okay, so where would you go, George? I'd go to Romans. Okay. Um, and there's there's several places that we could go. I mean, you go to Romans one, uh, with with the the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For mm-hmm. what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Um, but it, it goes on to say that they they suppress the truth and believe a lie. And that is, that's not just these people over here, the, you know, these are the really bad people. Uh, these are the Democrats, right? This is, this is, this is, this is everyone. This is everyone. Um, you go to Romans 3, and Paul's, Paul is, is stringing together all of these Old Testament passages. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one seeks for God. That is a universal negative mm-hmm. um, of uh, they're bent. Like they're, they are naturally bent away from God. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they don't have a proclivity to seek after God. How are they going to turn and, and put faith in Christ if they're not seeking after God? Right. He doesn't, yep. give, he doesn't give any kind of caveat here. This, this is the universal, this is the universal right. condition of man. Romans chapter 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For for Paul in this context, the flesh is the the unbeliever, right? Mm-hmm. So unbelievers are hostile to God. Uh, the mind of the unbeliever is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law; indeed, it cannot. Right. 
It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they don't seek after him because they're hostile to him. That, Amen. that they it's not that it's not that they they just need to be convinced. It's that their affections have to be changed. Yes. And mm-hmm. they're not they're not going to just do this on their own. Mm-hmm. Something has to happen to them in order for their mind now to not be hostile to God, now to want to submit to God's law. Something has to enable them to do it because left to themselves, the natural man cannot do it. Right. So man is in the state, uh, Paul will describe it elsewhere as being spiritually dead, Ephesians chapter 2, mm-hmm. that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So dead people need to come alive. Um, Jesus explains well, he'll, he'll just str- say it bluntly and plainly. At the end of, of John chapter 6, right, the massive crowd has all left Jesus, and the disciples are like, these are hard words. Like, this is a difficult teaching. Who can, who can accept it? That's the question. Who can accept yep. your teachings, Jesus? Yep. Right. Jesus' answer, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. Yeah. Yep. Um, I, I always like First Corinthians chapter two. Um, you know, we can share the gospel, we can open the Bible to them. Um, if you think that they're just going to, you know, change their mind apart from something that God does to them, you are you are contradicting explicitly what the scripture says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. Mm-hmm. And he is not able to understand them. Right. Like you can, you can lay out scripture after scripture that are plainly presenting Christ to the, the unbeliever, and unless God does something in their heart, they cannot understand it. It's it's foolishness to them. Right. They cannot understand it unless the Spirit of God um, brings them to life. You can see it so clearly in Jesus's uh, ministry. Yeah. And this is what I ask people all the time that don't believe this. I say, do you think you're, in a, you're a better evangelist than Jesus? Do you really think you're a better preacher than Jesus? Yeah. Because Jesus gives open invitations. Mm-hmm. He's the best preacher, the best teacher, and accompanying the, all his, stu- his teaching are miracles. Yeah, his signs. <laughs> yep. People saw yep. his miracles, they heard his they teaching, and they still refused to believe in him. Yeah, that's right. And Jesus' explanation is because they can't unless the Spirit awakens them. Yeah. All right. How do so, you multiply bread and fish and like just do miracles in front of their eyes, and they just go, "Nope." It's because they're dead I mean, in their trespasses. There, and sins. Right. there, there is no logical explanation for how he can raise Lazarus, and people go tell the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are like, "This let's, guy's got to go." Yeah, let's kill him. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there is no, there's yeah. no explanation for that except total depravity. Yeah. I mean, look at the descriptions right. that are used in the Bible: dead, yeah. enslaved, yeah. blind, enabled, yeah. unable, unable. Uh, what, what? What so could what, what could what could the uh, prophets and apostles have used? What language could they have used to make us understand more than you were dead? Yeah. Dead people do not just automatically come back to life. They yes. o- they only get worse. Yeah. 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 Jesus, uh, no one is able mm-hmm. to come to me. Yep. Right. Unless 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 right and th- and that's a statement of will if you look up the word it's a statement of will yeah 
Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily a statement of, oh, they can't walk over here yeah. and make a mental ascent to what I'm saying. It's a statement of a will, the will's ability. Yeah, and it's not as if something outside of the sinner is keeping them from Christ. Right. So the straw man is that, oh, you, you think that God just created them and, and they want to come, but God's like, no, you can't, you can't come because right. you're not elect. Right. The only thing that's keeping the unbeliever from coming to Christ is the unbeliever. It's, the it's their yeah. it's their unbelieving heart. This yep. this is what we mean by total depravity, by radical corruption, is the fact that every one of our faculties has been seriously corrupted yes. by sin. Yeah. The very way yeah. that we think has been corrupted by sin. So mm-hmm. we can't even understand the things of God yep. unless God does something to to yeah. heal that corruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, so the next one then is unconditional election. This is the doctrines of grace in the tulip model, unconditional election. So they say in this document, Calvinists believe in double predestination. We'll talk about that in a second. God predestines how people would respond and foreknew they would respond. Then they say, oh, but Baptists believe God chose to save those who would of their own free will put their faith in Christ. There's the distinction. Right. So now the, the question is, election according to the Bible. Yeah. Right? First off, I would outright deny that all Calvinists believe in t- double predestination. Right? That's so, so in their mind, what they have in view is the theological term equal ultimacy. And so this, I'll just explain it very quickly, it's easy to understand. When people accuse a Calvinist of double predestination, what they have in mind is that God works equally to save someone, and He works equally to ensure someone is damned. I deny that. What I what I believe about God's predestination is that everyone is damned unless God acts, right? So God right. doesn't have to do anything at all to a non-believer. That's John three, right? The wrath of God yep. remains on that's them. Right. And it's why it's why George, because maybe maybe like I've I, I formed a doctrine. Yeah. Like, I used to be in the Arminian camp. Mm-hmm. People may not know that. And then my world got turned upside down when I started to actually read the Bible and look these words up. <laughs> yeah, right? you, so, act, you mean you actually took the time to look up words in I the Bible, I looked them up. Jay? I had to look I up mean, a lot of words, because I didn't read a lot until I got regenerated, George. Aren't you being a little extreme with your Bible reading? Hey, here's one, here, here's, here's one way, you know, you ask, like, Angie, what happened to Jay when he got saved? Was that in life? Here, here goes. Here goes. Right. I used to be really me- like pretty mean, and I didn't like people, and 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 then all of a sudden, hey, how do you just start liking people? <laughs> and the other thing what happens? Well, the other thing what happened was Jay never read anything. Now all of a sudden, Jay reads everything. Mm. Like something t- drastic happened, right? Yeah. There's more to it than that, but that was obvious to her. Okay, so I, I think I, I and you know I'm saying this tongue in cheek, yeah, because I think the problem is a lot of people they're not taking the Bible seriously. Yeah, I mean, how many Amen. times? Have, how many times have you heard someone say, "Well, I, I don't believe in election," right? I don't believe in predestination. Like, yeah, like yeah. you ought to if you're a Christian. The, the words Bible. are in the Bible. <laughs> well, can I just can I just say we have a lady who's leaving supposedly our church because Ro- Brother Robert used the word elect in a sermon. Yeah, um, again, it's the, in the Bible. Yeah, the word the word we're not making these words up. These are not Calvinist words. These are Bible words. <laughs> like you, you don't yeah. like the word election. Um, Jesus uses it, and Paul uses it, and Peter uses it, 
your your problem is not with Calvinists, your problem's with the Bible. Well, well, I would also say, George, I'll piggyback off what you're saying. Ar- Arminians use these words, too. Yeah. Every Christian for 2,000 years has believed right. in election and believed in predestination. Yeah. They may vary on their theological differences on how they describe it. So if a person revolts against the words election and against predestination, maybe it's because they actually just hate the God of the Bible. Yeah. If if Peter is saying in in Second Peter one, make your calling and election sure, and he's he's telling Christians you better do this, you might want to know what election means. Mm-hmm. You, you might not you might not want to just gloss over that verse and say all right I'll do that, mm-hmm. but I have no idea. I don't believe in election. Right. You better you better believe in it. Um, if if uh, if Paul is presenting predestination as something that is meant to encourage and strengthen Christians, you might want to figure out what he means by predestination. That's right, because he uses those words, and um, they're obviously important. Yeah. And now, if we could break down to this election, because all, all Christians believe in election, they just describe it different. And and this this little paper they passed around against you kind of gets to the heart of it. We deny double predestination. That's a straw man. You can get rid of that straw man too. We'll help you throw gasoline on it because we don't believe in it either. Um, so let's just get that right out of the way. We believe God acts in grace to save people, and He let and He lets sinners go His own way, and they do the work themselves. But it comes down to unconditional. Is election unconditional, or is it conditional? See, they describe it in a conditional sense in this paper. Baptists believe God chose to save those who would, of their own free will, put their faith in Christ. There's the condition. The person does something, right? In this case, the the person that will have faith in Jesus, God then retroactively elects that person. Right. Where the the Calvinist or the doctrines of grace position is that God unconditionally elects. That is, there's nothing that you did, good or bad, that caused God to, to choose to save you, to awaken you from your deadness and sin. So which one's biblical? Well, guys, we come back to this. Which one has the most biblical evidence? And let's yeah. let's go. Which one is it, guys? Well, the doctrine's a great position. I mean, this is Romans 9, 11, and 12, right? I mean, this is, this is Jacob and Esau. So they were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's like just, I was told the older will serve the younger. That should I mean, settle it, it. It couldn't be, it couldn't, I don't understand how it could be any more clear. Yeah. And, and I mean, Paul lays it out. It's not because, you know, um, of one that would be good or bad. It was before they were born. You know, they're not even moving. They're not even making willful choices. But because God, so God's purpose of choosing, his purpose of election would stand. So it's God who's making the mm-hmm. choice. And I think it just, I think the reason we rebel against this is because we just, it, it just, it puts God on his infinite throne and we just, we hate that. Now the, the, uh, the response would be, well, God looks down the corridor of time, uh-huh. right? He sees, he sees, right. um, the choices that people make. Um, and there's, right. there's some, I, I think we let that slide too easily Yeah, because that's a, that's mm-hmm. a major, that's a major theological error uh-huh. to say that mm-hmm. God looks down the corridor of time and learns something. Well, yeah, he doesn't have to learn anything. He never learns anything, right? Right, right. It's blasphemous. God doesn't have to look down the corridor of time. He made time. And and, and the Scripture doesn't present time as something that God is reactionary to. We don't sit across a chessboard and play chess with God. He owns the board. He owns the pieces. He owns the table. 
you know, he moves things, he changes things to accomplish his infinite purpose. He's just, he's not reactionary in the sense that we don't manipulate God. He causes and he moves and it's just, it's just an unbiblical concept. Um, And and, and, and John is full of the concept that the gospel is, and and I'm just, I'm going to park there for just a second, just because I was preaching through it. But Jesus is just full and John is full of in John that, Men don't want to come. They, they, they. He can't look down the halls of time and see men choosing him because no one does, and that's the that's the other problem. They don't want him. So if he looks down and waits for their free choices, he's going to be waiting for a long time because they don't really come. Yeah, I, I think that's um, it's it's great that Paul uses Jacob and Esau as his example. Mm-hmm. If mm-hmm. God looks down the corridor of time and sees Jacob's choices. That's bad, bad news, news for right. Jacob. <laughs> right, right. Bad news because the because the 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 wonder is not why did he overlook Esau? It's it's why did he choose Jacob? Yeah, right. Jacob's presented like that continually. Yeah, as a mess up. Right, right, right. Incredibly yeah, flawed person. Uh, Ephesians right. chapter two. If, Ephesians one. When is our when is our predestination from? Before time, I mean, before, before, before the beginning. <laughs> I mean, that. I mean, that would seem to make it pretty clear. It's unconditional. Like you didn't do anything. God right. sets His. That's why it's called grace, right? It's grace because right. it, you you didn't do anything to get it. It's undeserved. And and what people will do with Ephesians, I've found maybe what I used to do is that when we, we talk about like in Ephesians one five, like He predestined us for adoptions our adoption, or even as he chose us, Ephesians 1, 4, he chose us in him. Mm-hmm. People will say, well, the most important part is that the in him thing. And I go, well, yes, that is important, but you can't, you can't say in him is important and throw out the chose us because the chose us is still there. He's still choosing. So of right. course the most important part. So, so they try to create a system where the in him is the most important and then you know our free will <clears throat> right. like like they said retroactively throws us back into this choosing somehow and it's just well what they like do they said one time it's, it's, a, it's a philosophy that adds to what the scriptures plain yeah what they do is they say jesus is the elect one and then now yeah. if it, if it, if any of you would choose to follow Jesus, well, then you can get on the, in on the party too, and now you're That's elect. Like and now you're elect. And all that yeah. really does is that that makes you the one that does the electing. You're the mm-hmm. one doing the electing now. You would think that we as Americans would understand the term election a little bit better. Yes, yes. What do we do when we go to the polls? Right. What do we do when we elect a president? You know, it's choosing, and we just have a problem with with God having a free. Well, I mean, if you if you uh, if well, you be- if you believe the uh, that the election was stolen, maybe we could have an Arminian view that we we chose someone who had already chosen to be <laughs> chosen chosen to make himself president. So, George, haven't you heard this one though from the revivalist type guys? God voted for you. Uh-huh. The devil voted against you. Right. <laughs> no arm wrestling. And then you get to cast the final vote. Yeah. You heard that? Oh, yeah. Well, in reality, the deal is uh, there's one vote and no one else is voting. Right. God gets, <laughs> yep. God gets the vote and you don't get the vote. Yeah. Now, Again, this goes back to total depravity. Yeah. I, I think that everything is built on total depravity, and total depravity is clearly seen in the Scripture. Oh, yeah. Now, you, you cannot—even the Arminians, like you said, even the Arminians hold to total depravity. Mm-hmm. 
Um, classical Armenians. Classical Armenians. Now, well, they talk these, about what happened in America. But with these, this. you know, these these traditionalists are are throwing out total depravity. But it is clearly, I, I think it's it's. I mean, I, I think all the points are clearly seen. But if we're gonna, you know, split hairs, I would say that probably probably total depravity is the one that's most clearly seen, and everything <clears throat> builds off of it. Yeah. So if total depravity is true, mm-hmm. unconditional election has to be true. Because you're not going to choose. Right. Okay, now let's get to the one that seems to be the big one that everybody struggles the most with. Um, limited atonement. That's how they phrase it, George. Limited atonement. Again, I love the way that this this paper argues against it. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I don't like that term. I had, a good, I had a good laugh when I read when I read it. You know what term I prefer. Yes. What is it? It's which one do you prefer, particular or definite? Definite. Yeah, I like definite. Yeah, definite atonement. Okay. So let's jump into that. Tell you walk us through this one, George. You since you said you like how they frame it. Well, I like this. So they say Calvinists believe in penal substitution regarding Christ's death. <laughs> yes. I'm just gonna let that sit for a second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Because that's that's what the scriptures uh, describe the death of Christ as um, that Christ died for only the elect. So they're they're conflating penal substitution and, and limited atonement together. Right now, I think they go together, but they do go together. You, you have to define them separately. I think uh, this is called limited limited atonement. That the atonement of Christ dying on the cross is intended only for the elect. Baptists believe in general atonement that Christ died for all sinners, and by their free will they determine whether to respond to it and accept by faith. Yeah, the way they keep framing it's dishonest too. Oh yeah, yeah. Calvinists believe this, but Baptists actually believe this. Yeah. Right. That's that's it's not an honest up a way to frame it. Dichotomy. Yeah. 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 We've yeah. we've uh, hopefully we've already proven that. Yeah. There are plenty of of Calvinistic Baptists. Right. Um, let's let's talk about penal substitution first, because it would seem, uh, and you can you can you know fill us in on this if this is if you've seen this, that they're denying penal substitutionary atonement. On accident, I'm guessing. Uh huh. I don't think they probably right. did it on purpose. I gotta right. try to be graceful to them. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think they did it on purpose. I think if you explain penal substitution, they'd be like, yeah, we believe that. Yeah, you know what I mean. But yeah, they did it on accident. Right. Seems like but to me. this is—I think this is important because Arminians deny penal substitutionary atonement. So their their uh, their theory of the atonement is the governmental mm-hmm. view that the death of Christ made it possible for God to forgive yep. sinners, not that Christ <laughs> actually took the sins on Himself mm-hmm. um, and suffered on the cross for sins um, as a penal substitution. They might, some might would say, no, we do believe in penal substitution, but they would describe it different, differently. Mm-hmm. They would say because God saw through time who would believe in him, mm-hmm. th- uh, he then died for all of those who would, that he knew would believe in him throughout all time. Yeah. And that's how they would describe penal substitution. I think, I'm, a, I'm a open to correction on that. I'm trying to, again, throw him as much grace as I can. Right, right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think they would probably say it something like that. Yeah. Um, but this this statement itself is poorly done mm-hmm. if it's denying penal substitutionary yeah, atonement. That's right. Yeah. Uh, because the scriptures clearly say that Christ died for us. Yeah. That's penal substitutionary atonement. Yes, that's right. So where would we go in the Bible to to give us an idea of this, of which one would be most true? 
You know where I like to go? I I like to, uh, I always like to go to Leviticus 16 Mm -hmm. and the Day of Atonement. Okay. What, what did the, what did the Day of Atonement sacrifice do? Yeah, yeah. Did it do anything? Did it do anything? Yeah. Who was it for? Yeah. Is it for the Philistines? Is it for the Canaanites? Like when they (laughs) offer the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins, is it for the Babylonians? Like, is it for the entire world? Was it for the devil? <laughs> yeah, or paying a paying a ransom to guys, the devil. You guys joke at that, but I think that's what a general atonement yeah. implies. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, but when you look at the type that's pointing forward to the reality of Christ, you see a a definite atonement for a particular people. Mm-hmm. It's for Israel. It's not for <clears throat> it's not for the world. Okay. Right. And what does he actually what's it actually do? It actually takes the sin away. The high priest lays his hand on the head of the the scapegoat, confesses the sin of the people, and then the goat is taken outside the camp and and put in the wilderness. The yeah. the sin of the people is actually taken away. Yes. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And it's for it's for the people of God. It's not for it's not for the world in general. Mhm. It okay. actually accomplishes something. So that's that's where I, that's the first place I like to go because it's setting up. I mean, the whole the whole Levitical sa- sacrificial system. It's setting up uh, a picture of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. Um, mm-hmm. And so, if we can understand the type, we can understand um, the fulfillment, the reality. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different places there you can build theology off this. One is just from the Lord's Supper itself. Mm-hmm. Jesus holds up the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out on my blood, or pour, you know, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then Man, you begin I... to look at what Peter says at the beginning of it. Um, he talks about the election of the Father, um, the sprinkling, uh, the sprinkling in His blood. I think that's the terminology in yeah. Christ's blood. And then you go back to the Old Testament, and you see the only people sprinkled with the blood of a sacrifice are Israelites, in particular, mm-hmm. those ratifying the covenant. So it's very particular. Yeah. I think Come to I, Ephesians, redemp- I, redemption through his blood. I think that, like I said, you have to, you have to define separately penal substitutionary atonement and definite atonement. Mm-hmm. It, you can't conflate them, though I think that they intimately go together. Yes. So if you, if you actually believe in penal substitutionary atonement, that Christ actually took the sins of actual people on himself, on the cross, then that has to be definite. Well, you're going to go to Isaiah 53? I went to Isaiah 53. Okay, well, then I which, won't. Which I'll is, go somewhere else. Which is a very clear um, presentation of penal substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, mm-hmm. smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, that word for, it, it's it's in the place of, in the place of our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Mm-hmm. Uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. If, if that's penal substitutionary atonement, um, then and, and Christ actually did this, then it has to be definite. If not, there are people who are in hell today that Christ actually took punishment for. Mm-hmm. That he actually was pierced for their transgressions, but oh, they're in hell anyway. Um, it, if, if yeah, God is unjust because he's already punished their sins on the cross. So how can they be in hell? Mm-hmm. 
So if you hold the penal substitution, you can really only become a universalist, or or you need to become a Calvinist if you're if you're being consistent. Right now, I, I well you know I well like I've, I said, I've never I've never met like a consistent yeah Arminian. Well, they'll they'll try to do the thing where I said that he knew ahead of time who was right. going to choose him, so that's that's who he slain his life down for. Mm-hmm. John John Ten's another place. Yeah. It's very explicit that's, in John that's chapter. That's what I was going to say. You going to go there, yeah. Robert? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. I mean, you know, he he he's praying in his high priestly prayer, not for the world, but for those who the Father has given him. This is the same in John six. You know, all the ones that the Father gives me will come to me. He's not going to lose any of them. He's going to raise them up on the last day. Of course, and then I think it's John ten, John ten fifteen, mm-hmm. right? Am I thinking right? Yeah. Ten, uh, even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the world. No, it's for the sheep. So I mean, I, I, Jesus's own words, like I said earlier, is, "I'm dying for my sheep," mm-hmm. and my sheep have been have been explained and have been. He's given specificity to that earlier in John by saying it's the ones that the Father have given to me. So mm-hmm. he, he's dying for a specific people, if for sure, in John. So, yeah, it's right there in the text. It's just that we just don't – I think I think your – I mean, this, sounds, this doesn't sound graceful, I, I hate to say it, but I think your average – sometimes your average churchgoer in many churches and some in Southern Baptist churches that I've been in, they just don't think critically that way, and the sermons aren't presented that way. And sometimes the you know the study material, the lifeway material, just doesn't. We just don't look at doctrine that way. Um, and and but but that is what the scripture is saying clearly. Yeah, I don't think we think theologically. No, no. I think we. I I, I just don't think that we we have that depth. We're very surface level nope. in in our thinking. Yep. Um, very hallmarkish. Mm-hmm. You know what yep. I'm saying? Yep. Like very sentimental. Well, you, you you can't get John three sixteen type sermons, and, and you know, God bless them. You can't get you can't get you can't have fifteen John three sixteen sermons, and then you can't have twenty more topical sermons about being a good neighbor, and then and then get to the you know the heavy doctrine. You yeah. just can't. This is why expository preaching is so necessary in our churches. Yeah, and the the interconnectedness. Of different doctrines. Of um, what? Yep. Because when I went to seminary uh, back in uh, 2009, I was I was unconvinced of limited atonement. Mm-hmm. I was I was a four point. That's where I was. Yeah. Um, and what won me over was the high priestly office of Christ. That yeah. it was that doctrine that won me over, and I've been I've I've been a five point Calvinist since. Um, because yeah. it, like you said, in his high priestly prayer, he, he prays not for the world, but for those whom the father has given to him. Yeah. If he's going to intercede, that's high priestly, right? He's interceding for them on their behalf. He's praying for them. How is his work on the cross, which is also a priestly work, um, as he offers a sacrifice, how is that going to be disconnected? Mm-hmm. It has to be, it's unified. He intercedes for the people for whom he offers the sacrifice. Right. That's that's what's going on in Hebrews. Where where uh, I'm about to to start a series on Hebrews, and we're going to be talking a lot about the high priestly office of Christ. Mm. Um, it says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. 
who's being sanctified? It's the people that he offered the sacrifice for. Yeah. It's there. You have to bring them together. Those for whom he died, he intercedes for. Mm-hmm. Right. And if he's only interceding yep. for Christians, I've never heard anyone say that he's interceding for everyone without, you know, any kind of, of uh, particularity. If he's interceding only for believers, he died only for believers. Mm-hmm. Now, so I'll keep asking this question as we move through these. We got two more to go. Now, uh, you two guys, you uh, people that would deny this and and not hold to this position, do you do you hold them as brothers and sisters that you would actually care for and love in your churches? Yes. Yeah. I mean, with the difficulty that it took me to come to this position. Mm-hmm. Um, this is certainly not something that I'm going to be holding over people's heads where you're probably not even a Christian if you don't hold to this. I I know how long it took me and, um, the serious thought and reading I had to do. Um, yeah. It takes theology to do this. I guess what I'm trying to show is that you guys aren't the stereotype of a Calvinist. (laughs) Like you're not going to, okay. You're going to say to the free will Baptist, you can, you can do your ministry and, Lord willing, God will bring people to Christ through your ministry. Or are you going to be like you guys are, you guys are heretics and you're going to hell? Which one? <laughs> Lord willing, Lord willing, the Lord will bring you to grace. I heard Steve Lawson. Right, you guys, Lord you guys aren't like that, here. right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I no. you know, I wish I had the the Spurgeon quote in front of me. But Spurgeon, who was a five point Calvinist, I mean, he even said that George. Oh, I know it's uh, going to trigger some people. Because he's a hero for people, even he's like even a though, hero. yeah, he's a Baptist hero, even for people that are <laughs> have great animosity <laughs> uh, towards Calvinists. Um, but he has a quote. He has a quote where he says that there are people who are going to be saved by you know divine election, by unconditional election, that don't believe in unconditional election. There are people who are going yeah. to be saved. Um, by the limited or definite atonement of Christ that don't believe in the definite atonement of Christ. There there are yep. people who are going to persevere to the end who don't believe in perseverance of the saints. Right. Um, so the the truths of these doctrines don't change based on the subjectivity of the person. Mm. <laughs> Thank God. Right. We, yep. we praise the Lord. None of us were saved as Calvinists. Like right. we that's that's not that's not what it means to be a Christian. But do you guys I've got, hold, I've got to check yeah. all the boxes. So you guys don't I like was, hold your nose up at these guys. Right, I was and be like, nah, I was saved. I was saved. You're beneath me somehow. I was saved at a particular time by the we're, we're getting to the effectual call. Right. Irresistible grace when I didn't know what that was. Right. I was yeah. I was saved by the definite atonement of Christ when I I didn't know what that was. Yeah. I no, just knew that Christ it, Christ died for me. I was a sinner. Christ died for me. I needed to turn to him in, in repentance and faith. That's that's what it, I that's what I needed to do. Yeah, it has yeah. humbled me more and more as I've come to understand the doctrines of grace over time. The Lord's sovereignty has humbled me more and more. And like I, I was saying, I heard Steve Lawson say one time, the Lord is sovereign over who believes in his sovereignty. And that and that just really humbled me, you know? And so I don't I just don't beat anyone over the head over any of these things. I mean, I want people to see this because like I said earlier, I think it's, I think it's when you come to understand this, it's just, it just brings you to your knees. I mean, it just brings you to a place of worship and of appreciation. And I, I, I don't understand. 
I don't understand how anyone could actually believe these things and become arrogant or boastful or domineering towards any Christian regarding them. I mean, I guess that you would understand the, the tendency because it is in Scripture but we should be the most genteel of, of all Christians about these things. Yeah, I, th- I think one of the um, necessary readings for all Christians, for all Calvinists, um, is uh, Albert Martin's little booklet. I don't even know if it's 50 pages. Um, the Practical Implications of Calvinism. I, mm-hmm. I think that's a necessary necessary um, book for all Calvinists to mm-hmm. read. Because mm-hmm. his, his point is, if you're going to be a Calvinist, that should make you the most humble person, the most gracious person, because you recognize it's by God's grace that you've been saved. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know why God doesn't um, allow every believer to um, affirm these doctrines that, that we so clearly see. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, but again, that's, that's God's sovereignty. And so right. we should be gracious to people who um, don't, they haven't understood the scripture in the same way, mm-hmm. and and the other people that aren't that don't believe this, they have a lot to contribute to the kingdom too. I think that's what we need to keep yep. in mind. Um, the the president yep. of that Wesleyan college up in Tulsa or uh, Bartlesville, mm-hmm. what is his name? So I think it's Piper, Doctor Piper. Mm-hmm. He has written a lot of really good stuff. Yeah, and so yeah. I th- I think we just need to remember like. We're part of uh, God's. God's got a plan. It's it's outside of our understanding, and we ought to treat every Christian with kindness. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. That's just my. That's yep. my. That's just my my take. I'd hate to get to heaven and Jesus be like, why Why were you mean to my uh, <laughs> to my, sheep? my sheep? Well, my sheep. I, I mean, you know what I'm I saying? yeah, and I again, I, I want to be gracious, but we've we've all been through this where we're we're viewed like we're heretics. Mm-hmm. By yep. non by non Calvinist, and my appeal would be to those who aren't fully convinced of Calvinism that they might show grace also. Mm-hmm. I, I I hope oh, that yeah. I hope that what we can we can show is that we're trying to be serious students of the Word of God, okay. and we're affirming the essentials of the faith. Um, there there are no essentials that we are are denying. We're we're affirming the essentials of the faith. Uh, the most orthodox guys like the. Your best friend in a theological fight is going to be a Calvinist because we take the Word of God seriously, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't skip over you know the hard parts. We we want to be faithful to the text, and so I would just yep. appeal to those who are not Calvinists, who are not convinced, treat us like brothers. Yeah, because yep. we're, we want to treat you like brothers, also. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So okay, we've done the the T U L. Let's go to the I and the P. So the I, irresistible grace, irresistible grace. Which again, not a great. <clears throat> it fits with the it fits with the uh, the acrostic, but maybe not the best description right. of of the doctrine. Yeah, because the presentation is like there's people that don't want to be saved. Right. And God's like, get over here. Yeah. I'll put you in a. <laughs> well, I'll put you in a headlock for Mortal Combat. Which yeah. I mean. That is true. There are people that don't want to be saved. Yeah, that's all of us, right? right. <laughs> all, all of us don't want to be saved. We've already established that the the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. What does that mean? Except mm. we don't want to be saved. Yeah, we want the benefits, but we don't want I've God. Heard, I've heard somebody call it spiritual rape. Mm. Have you ever heard anybody I describe have. it that way? Yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. That's well, how they, bad they, they try they, to characterize it. Right. They say God's they, spiritual. They love that is forced. 
Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he was say. It's love. It's like God's forcing His love on you. Like he, he's I've heard, I've spiritual. Heard, he's called well, a spiritual. Well, I've, I've heard people. I've heard people as prominent as Hank Hinegraaff say that God's not a rapist. Yeah, like that's a that's a bad. That's, that's, that's a very bad, bad. That's very very straw bad. Man. Very 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 bad. Yeah. So here here's how I would describe. Well, look, I, I'll tell you how I would describe it in layman's terms, and then we can go theologically on it. But first, let's see what they say. Right. They, they say, Calvinists believe God's grace cannot be resisted by those chosen, predestined by God. And then it gets, like, it kind of blacks out on mine. But. And then they say, Baptists believe God's grace can be resisted, and this results in a person not being saved. Okay. So, here's how I would describe it. And again, here's theologically what uh, irresistible grace is, and it's one that I'm very interested in. And I've I've read into it this one a lot, and maybe because of my own experience being uh, regenerated in an unexplainable fashion. Let's say that. Okay. Again, how does one go from not thinking God is real, following the logical conclusion? Like so, post deployment. That's where mine came. Right. Skepticism, post deployment, depression, God, problem of evil, problem of evil. Right. God must not be real. If God and then if God's not real, there's no meaning in life. Nihilism. <laughs> All right now, here's the question: How, in that state, in the in the like a bolt of lightning, do I go from that to thinking Jesus yep. is the treasure of the universe? Yep. Right. So maybe that's why I'm so interested in this. But that's my experience. That's how I was. I was saved. I was overwhelmed that. Uh, with a vision that God is amazing and holy, and that I was a sinner, and I was lost, and I was scared for a second. And then I realized, because I'd heard the gospel five billion times before that, growing up around <laughs> churches, that Jesus was my only hope. So I ran to him in faith. He became beautiful to me. How, how does someone who before that I didn't even believe was real become the most beautiful and irresistible thing and thing to me in the universe? Literally, the pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in a field that I would give in anything at that point in time to follow Jesus, and it happened mm-hmm. in an instant. Well, mm-hmm. the, the explanation is this. You're compared to being blind or dead, right? So a, de- a blind person can't see Jesus for who he is, right? They can intellectually make intellectual assent that Jesus lived— he, he maybe even did miracles. He, ro- he rose from the dead, you, you know, but they don't see him for who he is because they have a different love. They love something else. What is that which they love? They love what, what binds them. Jesus says mm-hmm. anyone that is sins is a slave to sin, and a, a slave can't free themselves. They have to be set free, and so Jesus said, so if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So here's the picture, right? You... Um, you're in love with your, your sin, and you don't love Jesus. Your sin is beautiful to you. Jesus is not beautiful to you, right? Mm. And then all of a sudden, when God's grace comes, He strips the blinders off your eyes, that which is keeping you from seeing who Jesus truly is. He removes this heart of stone in an instant, in a flash, and at the same instant that happens, faith is expressed. I don't believe faith comes at like in time, and in a time sequence, mm-hmm. it's something that happens later. Logically, regeneration precedes faith, but in the t- space-time continuum that we're in, they happen at the same time. As the mm-hmm. blinders are removed, you behold Christ. Well, when someone sees Jesus for who they are, 
of their own than freed will, a will that has been freed from the bondage of sin. A person right. freely of their own will runs to Jesus. Right. God doesn't God doesn't like spiritually rape them. What he does is spiritually rescues them. He frees them from their sin. And then when they behold uh-huh. Jesus, they're like, "Oh, Jesus is the treasure of the universe. I got to have him." I gotta mm-hmm. have him. He's the only thing that he's the only one that can save me. It becomes irresistibly, <clears throat> irresistibly beautiful to you. That's the that's that's my explanation. Okay. Now that sounds all great, Jay. That's your experience. <laughs> that's how you were <laughs> that, Jay, that's how you were saved. That's how you were saved. Is it biblical, George? That's my question. Well, I mean, this is the this is the doctrine of regeneration. This is the doctrine of being born again. Mm-hmm. I mean, Southern Baptists are so big on, on talking about being born again. Did Calvinists come up with that term, born again? No. <laughs> you, I mean, with the way that they talk about it, you'd think that they, you'd think that they'd coin the term. But no, they, you know, they. This is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. You must be born again. John mm-hmm. three. He says that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Mm-hmm. Well, what does that mean? It means that before you see. You have to have something done to you. Right. Something has to happen to you before yeah. you can see the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Before you can see who Christ is, your eyes have to be opened. Yeah. Um, the, the, it's the picture of Jesus healing the man born blind. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, you're blind. You're, imp- you're imprisoned. Mm-hmm. You're dead. Jesus has to do something for you. He has to cause your eyes to see. He has to set you free from your chains. He has to cause you to be born again mm-hmm. um these are these are doctrines that that southern baptists they affirm they just they're just not really thinking about um how they relate they mm-hmm. they're not understanding um the order of these things you have to be born again in order for you to respond mm-hmm. because how's a dead person going to respond what had to happen first did, did lazarus have to come back to life or did he have to respond which one did he do first? Yeah. He had to come back to life first. <laughs> and how did he come back to life? By his own free will? No, it's because he Jesus said out. Lazarus. Yeah. <laughs> I see that hand. <laughs> it's, All it's, those eyes are closed. Right. It's, it's, Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus comes to life, mm. and mm. then he comes forth. Mm. He can't obey until he comes back to life. And it's the same with the spiritually dead person that we have to be born again. God has to cause us to be born again. That's that's Peter's words in First Peter chapter one. He has he has according to his great grace, he has caused us to be born again. Yeah. And because we're born again, we can do nothing else but come forth. Mm. Um there there's no there is no scenario in which someone who has been born again is going to remain in his tomb. Mm. Like there, there, it would be absurd to think that Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus wakes up and takes a breath and says, eh, I'm good. <laughs> you know, it's, it's nice and cool in here. I'm all snuggly in my, you know, burial cloth. <laughs> like he's going to come out. Mm-hmm. It's the same with someone that's been born again spiritually. Mm-hmm. Jesus causes us to be born again and we are going to come forth and follow him. That's, that's why Jesus says in John six, all that the father gives me will come to me mm-hmm. not Once might not not may make a decision by their own free will they will come right 
Yeah, there's a, and there's a big connection there in John and John six that takes us back to Ezekiel two, mm-hmm. or Ezekiel, uh, because he says they will all be taught of God, yeah. and that you go back mm-hmm. there, and that's where you learn that God gives the heart of stone, mm-hmm. or He removes the heart of stone, gives the heart of flesh, and God teaches them to obey His right. commands. It's the work of the Spirit. Yeah, and so Jesus says they will all be taught of God. This is this as is, it is written. They this will is all, be all of connected God. to the new covenant. It's all connected to the death of Christ, because right. Christ has shed His blood which is the blood of the new covenant, all of the benefits of the new covenant can be applied to believers. And that includes having that heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, the law of God being put on their hearts, the spirit being given to them. All of these are part of the new covenant, and it's not something that we do. It's something that God does. Uh-huh. You, you go back to Jeremiah 31 and look at the passage that's talking about the new covenant, and you can just highlight how many times God says, I will, I will, I will. God's doing these things. It's not us. Mm. It's it's one sided. Yeah, it is. All we do is respond after God has brought us to life. That's right. Um, and we're going to. We we will. Um, Acts chapter eleven. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, "Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life." Not not the Gentiles have have chosen, but that God has done something for them. Um, Acts chapter thirteen. Um, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Like something has happened first, and then they respond. Um, when when Paul is is preaching um, in uh, in Philippi, it says that Lydia heard, but the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Like all of this is is God's effectual call mm-hmm. for dead sinners to come to life and. Follow, follow after Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, First John five one is another powerful verse, mm-hmm. which they used in this document in a strange place. I was trying to look for it, but I couldn't find it. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Where they tried to use that? Could you find that? You said First John. Yeah, I thought they had tried to use First John five one, and I was like, man, that's not a good one to use for your position because, you know, it's pretty much says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So the and the way, if you look at the construction of this uh, verse, it, it really is uh, you. Be- people believe because they've been born, right? It's not whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be born of God. It's whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God or has been born of God. Yeah. So I don't know why the verse was used, but it, it kind of teaches what we're talking about here. Next. Well. Go ahead, I was Robert. just going to. I was just going to say I was talking to a Presbyterian pastor friend who I think you know as well, Jay, up here in the in the KC area, and he was saying, you know, Jesus in John three with Nicodemus uses the analogy of physical birth for for the explicit reason that how much do you have to do with your with your physical birth? I mean, how much negotiating did you do with your parents, Jay, when when you were born? I don't know when that was. Was that like in the sixties? But uh, you know, you had you had nothing. Wow. You had you had nothing. You had no input on that, right? Yeah. And that's the exact reason that Jesus uses this analogy, and he just rocks Nicodemus's world, and he and he says, "This is going to be all of God. This is going to be his initiation work, his 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 drawing." 
his, his effectual grace is going to be working and moving. All this works righteousness that you're building up as the teacher of Israel is just devastatingly worthless. Mm. And, and he crushes him. Yeah. And that was really a game changer for me too. When I, when I understood that, that, wow, I really had nothing to do with, with mama and papa, you know, with Robert's birth. Right. In the same way here, it was, it was of God. Yeah. Now I think, again, the straw man is defeated when you understand what the irresistible grace actually does to the will. <laughs> That's why we call it, I prefer mm-hmm. effectual call mm-hmm. because effectual it, call, it does yeah. something to you, right? Which is free you from sin. So, People hear the gospel, yep. like there are two people sitting right by each other in church. Like, I'm sure there are mm-hmm. people on the same row as me that were, are still unsaved today. Mm-hmm. I'm not saved because I'm better than them at all, right? Right. But people hear the worse. gospel, right? The general <laughs> offer of the gospel is a real offer of the gospel. We could do a whole episode on the, gen- uh, on the yep. general offer, if it's a well-meant offer or not, because I believe it is. Yep. Yep. I believe it yep. reflects God's general disposition to all mankind, that He does not delight in the destruction of the wicked at all. Right. Uh, but God overrides some people's unbelief. Why does He do that? I don't know. That's why it's called grace. That's why, you know, if you're a Christian, you ought to be overwhelmingly grateful, not because you're smarter than the person that was in the pew next to you that didn't receive Jesus, because you're not, not because you're better or you understood it, but because God did something for you. He overcame your unbelief. So the effectual call came. God let you see Jesus, right? And after removing and stripping you of this dead heart, giving you a new heart, he let you behold him for who he is. And the only thing a sinner can do at that point is in gratitude run to Jesus. I think that's an important question to ask people that that deny the effectual call. Is why are you a Christian? Mm-hmm. Why why you and not someone else? Like we all know unbelievers. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know we know unbelievers that have heard the gospel. Why are why did you respond, but this person didn't? Yeah. And if it's anything other than well, the Holy Spirit did a work in my heart that He didn't do in this person's heart, it's all going to be something that's based on your works. Mm-hmm. I was smarter. I you know I I just realized you were willing I, to I knew, lay down yeah, your life. I, yeah, I knew that I was this willing is, to let yeah, go of my life. And right. It, Jesus. It's all going to be it's all going to be about you. Mm-hmm. Um, all glory goes to God. Salvation is of the Lord. That's that's Jonah's cry from the belly of the of the fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of Baptists have not um, come to that realization that that Jonah came to. Mm. Yeah. All right. Last one: perseverance of the saints. And there's a bunch of other documents we're not going to go through because we're pushing two hours by now for sure. Perseverance of the saints, guys. Um, so. The traditional way, I mean, this this one will be interesting and kind of, I don't know how we go about it, because everybody that's a Baptist, except for free will, I guess free will Baptists deny this, they have to, but everybody in the Southern Baptist Convention believes this, whether they're a Calvinist or a, uh, uh, they'd say they're a traditionalist or a soft Calvinist, I don't even know the terms people use, but they all they all believe in once saved, always saved. That's the, that's the term they use. They don't use perseverance of the saints. They use once saved, always saved, meaning that people who become Christians uh, will be Christians forever. Now, once saved, always saved is problematic, because I think that leads people to the place where they can become apathetic, and many people fall into sin. And perhaps even that's what's behind maybe this this uh, 
the revivalism type stuff where kids get saved at youth group, you know, they're saved. Oh, now you're a Christian. Never doubt your salvation again. You'll always be a Christian. Once saved, always saved. And then they like go on to college and live, you know, like they're a rock star engaged in all kinds of crazy nonsense and living just like the world. And then they never go to church again. And you run into them when they're 45 years old and you try to evangelize them and they say, Oh, hold up. I'm already a Christian. And you're like, well, what do you mean, man? Like, uh, you have no fruit. I come up to your fruit. I'm like, hey, are there apples on this fruit tree? And I just found thorns. And you're claiming to be a Christian. Why? Well, some preacher told me once saved, always saved. Right? That's a problem. Mm. So a better term actually is perseverance of the saints. An even better term, George. I don't know. I don't think I made this one up. Surely not, because I'm not very smart. I'm not very original. Perseverance of Jesus in the saints. What do you think? Mm, of, what, do you, like what do you think of that one? It's a little wordy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I like that one because it because it George. because it because ex, it explains why why if a person perseveres in right. faith until they die, why do they do it? Yeah, and I think you know it, it's just because of Jesus' faithfulness to His people. Well, again, I, I think this is where people just aren't very careful with their doctrine. Yeah, they don't think through this theology because the the once saved always saved crowd is um, they're, they're going to an extreme where no matter what you do, um, you're, you're saved. Right. So you can, you can walk the aisle at Falls Creek, and if you really meant it, right? Yeah. That's, that's, the, that's, like, the key. that's the key. You have to really mean it. Right. I think there's a reason why so many people have, they struggle with doubt and insecurity over their salvation because they keep hearing did I really mean it? Mm-hmm. Or you got to have a time and a place. You got to have that date. And, um, you know, there's people that don't have that date. And so they think, well, if I didn't have, you know, if there wasn't a specific time that I can remember, you know, making a decision. Um, and so you can walk that aisle. If you really meant it, then you can never go to church again and you're still a Christian. Right. Um, and that's just, that. that's missing the whole point of regeneration and the new covenant and union with Christ mm-hmm. and all of these big theological ideas, yes. these, these really rich, mm-hmm. um, you know, massive doctrines. Like you've been born again. Mm-hmm. That means that you're not the same person that you were. Yes. God has mm-hmm. done a work in your heart. Your, your heart of stone has now been replaced with a heart of flesh, whereas you were hostile to God. Now you have the law of God written on your heart. You now have the Holy Spirit in your life. You've been brought into union with Christ. Like you said, your eyes have been opened to see the beauty of Christ. How can you go back and live like an unbeliever? Yeah. The truth is, a true Christian won't do that. Right, a true Christian right. will live in a, a new way. Yeah. They'll produce fruit. If, if Jesus couldn't have been any clearer than he was in, in John 15. Yeah. Like, you are, <laughs> I am the vine, you are the branches. Yes. The one who abides in me, what does he do? He bears, bears, fruit, bears fruit, right? He bears fruit. The one yeah. who doesn't bear fruit, what happens to him? Broken off and thrown into the fire. And that's not just a loss of reward. Like that's that's eter- that's eternal damnation, right? right? Mm-hmm. That, that's like fire is 
not a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> You're burnt up. Um, and in the context of this, that Jesus, there's Judas in the background. Yeah. One who has been mm-hmm. a, a recipient of all his teachings, who right. even would profess to have been his disciple, yeah. who clearly was not. And yeah. he's a picture we have of this and the other disciples. And yeah. it, it comes down to, again, it's why it comes down to the faithfulness of Jesus, because the other disciples persevere in faithfulness because Jesus is inter- he intercedes for them. Yeah. Peter has a great falling away too, mm-hmm. but Peter comes back. Right. And Peter comes mm-hmm. back because Jesus prays for Peter. Jesus doesn't pray for Judas. Yeah. And that's why I prefer that's right. it's, that, it's that union yeah. with Christ, right? Yeah. It's, it's all about union Jesus. with Christ. It's it's Christ's work as the as the great high priest who intercedes on behalf of his people. We persevere because Christ is causing us to persevere. Philippians chapter 2 is is where you got to go, mm-hmm. right? In order to have that balance work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's something that you have to do. Um, you, you can't be a lazy Christian. Yep. You have to do something. You have to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But it's God who is at work working in you, in you both, yeah. to will both to will and to work, and to work. So the very desire you have to work comes from, comes God. from God. That's right. Um, so you, you persevere because God is causing you to persevere, but you still have to persevere. Amen. George, did you like my uh, Captain America uh, illustration? Tony Stark and uh, Steve Rogers last Sunday? I, I, I figured you'd say something about it. Did I blank out on that? You must that? have blanked you, out, dude. What did you say? I said everything good in you came out of oh, a yeah, bottle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember you saying and that. And that's, that's the only thing a Christian can say. Uh-huh. Everything right. good in me came from Jesus. Yeah. And so, so if you persevere, right. it's because of him. Yeah, I mean, you know, Jesus says in uh, you know Matthew twenty four, the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. Mm-hmm. Like you can't say that there's no perseverance of the saints, right? Because <laughs> Jesus says uh, you have to persevere <laughs> to be saved. Um, but the uh, you know the good news is, you know, he that, says he'll that, lose that, none. He, he'll lose none. Jude, the doxology at the end of Jude, mm-hmm. he tells them. Jude tells them to keep yourself in the love of God. Mm-hmm. That's perseverance. That's just another word for perseverance. You have to keep yourself. Yeah. But the good news is that now to him who is able to keep you. That's right. So you have to keep yourself. But the good news is that Jesus is keeping you. That's right. right? Jesus doesn't lose any of his own that the Father has given him. You go back, go to the end of Revelation, the great multitude praising God. What are they praising Jesus for? Because he's died and purchased a people for himself from every tribe, tongue, right. language, and nation. Yeah. He's not going to purchase right. a people for himself to lose them. So there is this right. dual part of it going on. We're called to persevere, yeah. uh, but behind our persevering is God's faithfulness to per- us. Perseverance is is simply um, another term for sanctification. Mm-hmm. Like yep. this, we're, we are supposed to be progressively being sanctified into the image of Christ. Yeah. And where we would say that salvation is monergistic, God alone saves— but but sanctification is synergistic. Like we we've got to come right. alongside God and we've got to do something. Right. Like you're not you can't be passive in your sanctification. God is the one that is causing you to do this, but you still have to work. You still have to work. Right. Um, and uh, to deny that, I think, is to have a faulty view of it's yeah. it's that uh, you know Jesus take the will type of let go and let God theology. Yeah. That's that's really problematic. And I think I think we see um, the the bad effects, the negative effects of that that faulty theology in Southern Baptist churches, where there's there's no pursuit of holiness, right? There's no desire mm. to to follow the commands of Christ, mm. because you're once saved, always saved, right? 
Um, we need to get back to, uh, you know, a, a vibrant theology of perseverance of the saints. Yeah. Um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That you have to, you have to uh, pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yeah, um, Hebrews thirteen. We, we we've got to get back to that. Yeah, um, we got to wrap this thing up. But uh, Robert, one of these deals here: Calvinism versus biblical Christianity that was printed out. I think this is one is by the guy who was uh, self-educated. Is that what it's called? And then there's another one on here. <laughs> Uh, that yeah, they, D. Paul Walker. Yeah, D. Paul yeah, Walker studied at self-educated. Studied at self-educated. That's a seminary somewhere. Maybe. Now that's not. Uh, uh, there's nothing I'm wrong so, with that. There's nothing wrong because no, because no. we believe that the scriptures are. We believe in my favorite right. word: the perspicuity of scripture. Right. <laughs> yeah. it's, cl- it's clear. Like everything mm-hmm. that you need is clearly laid out in the scriptures. The scriptures right. are sufficient. Uh-huh. Um, that they are they're profitable, so that the man of God can be complete. Um, yep. So we're not saying you have to go to seminary to to know these things. There's not some kind of you know elite secret club uh, that that's um, you know that's that True. is an accusation that's throughout this document is right. that there's you know the secret club. That's that's not what we're saying. We're saying it's like that a skull and bone society. right. We're saying uh, that um, there we we cannot act like we are the first Christians. We're not the first generation of right. Christians. There yeah. we uh, I don't know who said it first. You know we're we are are standing on the shoulders of giants, mm-hmm. and yep. so these this this dialogue. I think Ant Man said it. This di- <laughs> I think you're right. The. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, you know the uh, this dialogue's been going on for at least five hundred years, and you go back to Augustine and Pelagius, yeah. it's still it, it's, it's, it's been going yeah. on for for the entirety so, of church history. Yep. Um, we cannot come at it like we're the we're the first guy, and we're we've got it all figured out, and and we're the one who's who's going to you know answer all of this. It, all of this has been answered already. Sure. Yeah. Um, and the problem is, you got guys like you know educated at self-educated that don't want to have dialogue with actual Calvinists. They don't want to have good faith conversations with Calvinists. And you know, they don't because of like the title, right? Calvinism versus biblical Christianity. Right. Now I think we ought to have the humility enough to say, uh, we can never say, uh, biblical Christianity versus Arminianism. Yeah. Because if you ever yep. interact with those people and listen to them mm-hmm. uh, describe what they believe or actually read their books, you'll begin to see that they're using the Bible and they're interpreting the Bible and coming to their conclusions and building a biblical theology. Yeah. And historically, yeah. we have to acknowledge there are various streams of what we would call biblical theology. Yeah. They're not yep. outside where we could throw them out and call them heretics with a capital H and they're going to hell. Right. Yeah. So right. we shouldn't be framing things in that light. We should just say, look, hey, here's two uh, Protestant, tra- technically Protestant Reformed traditions, yeah. by the way, if yeah. I could drop the R word. Oh. Uh, I know a Calvinist wouldn't like me calling Arminians Reformed, but in the classical sense, they come out of the Reformed stream as well, historically. Yeah. And we can't we, we can't be dropping bombs like that especially when the world is going the way that the world is going yeah like I, you let's go over to Kabul. i guarantee you you'll be happy to find another christian and you won't care if he's an arminian or a calvinist yeah right, right. now that's not right. to, that's not to say that we don't think that we're correct like well, this is not this is not course, subje- yeah. this is not subjective and no. well there's you know it's it's think, your own think, truth like we're I am I'm firmly convinced of the five points of Calvinism sure, yeah. from the scripture. 
and I, and they can't, are too. I can't, and, and they're convinced too. They are too. Yeah. Um, now one of us is right and one right. of us is wrong. We, we're not both right. The question then right. then comes: How should Christians? That's what I'm trying to get at. Is how but should Christians should, treat each we other? We should treat each other with grace. We should not yeah. be treating each other like non-believers, right? And locking the pastor out of the church for two weeks, right? And and slandering and lying about him behind his back yeah. to rally people. These are the works of these. These are literally the tactics and the techniques of the kingdom of, of the yeah. kingdom of darkness. Mm. Now, now I'm not saying like, hey, let's retaliate, Robert, retaliate. <laughs> Like uh, you can you can be forgiving and forgive yeah. you can f- extend forgiveness to these people. Jesus was mistreated in this way. I mean, we're talking about the one as he's hanging on the cross. He's asking God to forgive the people who did this to him. Mm-hmm. What's uh, what was so telling for me, and I, I'm sure that I, I don't know if you've thought of it either, but um, there in my circumstance, they were basically saying I wasn't a believer. Yeah. Instead of approaching me as an unbeliever, they yeah. lied and went behind my back yeah. and gossiped and were hateful yeah. and wrote hateful notes and said hateful things yeah. and screamed at me in my office. And is that is that how we treat unbelievers? Uh, is that no. is that how we're we're instructed by uh, by the apostles and by Christ to confront unbelievers? Right. Uh, no. Paul tells Timothy that the the man of God is supposed to be patient. Uh. Correcting his opponents with patience. Mm. Um, so, if we disagree with someone, even if we do think that they're promoting heresy, that doesn't mean that we um, can sin against them, right? Yes. Yep. No. No. Um, so we need to be charitable. We need to. We need to be um, quick to listen and slow to speak. Yeah. And if we are going to interact and like produce things like this document, we've got to uh, care enough to accurate, accurately articulate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, don't, what, don't what, lie what, about the position and then yeah. and then say well, have a slam dunk. Yeah, look how look how we tore their position apart. That's a that's a logical fallacy, and it's not worthy of uh, it's not worthy of Christians. Right. Yeah. We yeah. we need to accurately present even our opponent's position and not bear false witness against them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for us at the church here, it became we'll put out anything and everything. Once it was decided that Robert wasn't the guy, it it fairness went out the window. You know, which right. unfortunately is a tactic that should never be the case for a Christian. But nevertheless, we, we probably should say that you you did survive the. Uh ousting survived the vote i survived the vote so um, far so far you're still there i'm still there yeah yeah uh but you know i think at the end of the day this is more of a power struggle uh ecclesiology is really what's behind it and calvinism is the uh is the um it's the lightning rod yeah it's just like hey mm-hmm. or not even maybe it was at the lightning rod it's what the most expedient weapon mm. yeah. the most expedient yeah. weapon you know yep. so yeah it was a powerful weapon on the, on the battlefield. Yeah. Um, I, I think they were gunning for me with heresy and our, and our, our bylaws say that, um, it has to be immorality, heresy, or insubordination. So I was asked to leave, asked to resign over Calvinism. They realized that Calvinism is not heresy on the day of the vote. The charge was insubordination. Uh, that is just wild so, to me. <laughs> insubordination. <laughs> yeah. So I was, so I was literally lied to. I mean, that's, that's to me, that's a lie. That's, you, you've changed the the name 
you know, and, and, and all these people that got up to rally in my defense, and there were still four people ready to talk when they cut the talking off and went to the vote, you know, basically said that, look, the deacons have, they've, they've, they've presented false information. They told Robert Calvinism, and now they're telling you all today that it's in coordination. That's, that's presenting false you know, that's, that's not true. In first Timothy three, eight, the deacon can't be double tongued or he can't be a deacon. Mm. So yes, but, but nevertheless, the Calvinism stuff, I mean, one gentleman got up and, and this guy believes you can lose your salvation. I mean, he would word it a little differently, but he's a member of the church, which is wild. And he said, I won't have anything to do with that Calvinism and just stared at me and got down off the microphone and another member went, that's not even the charge. <laughs> uh, at the, uh, so, so my, uh, at, at, at the vote. so my, my church did try to fire me. Um, I survived also, but it was a, you know, it was not a pleasant experience to go no, through. Um, but I, just so awkward. I had a, there was a, a little old lady sitting in the back. I, I can still picture her with her, her big hat. She was sitting on the back row. Um, and uh, she said, I don't know what it is, but I don't want it here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And uh, goodness, that that is not how believers should be treating each other. Well, and, and walking in, we have a newer family. And this guy was a he's an ex Southern Baptist pastor. And, the, and he didn't do anything immoral. The church was just real small out in the country. And it just kind of folded up. And. He was walking in with, with an older member uh, who I had actually been real good friends with. And he said, hey, what's going on? What are we doing today? And he said, oh, we're going to fire our pastor. And he said, man, that doesn't sound like a real Christian thing to say. And he said, that's okay. And he said, well, if we fire the pastor, I'm going to leave too. And he said, well, that's okay too. <laughs> oh. And he, and he wow. just said that to this new family, wow. you know, that just came in. Like they just, it's just, they don't care. Yeah. Wow. You know, some people just don't care. So... And then you start to have the conversation of goats versus sheep, which is which is a whole other conversation. So, you know, debating about Calvinism is one thing, but just heinous, heinous behavior towards other Christians is really concerning. Mm. So, but I appreciate it, gentlemen. This has been informative to me and, and really uplifting to my spirit to, to have you brothers on and to talk about this. And thank you both for being there. Uplifting and encouraging during this time of uh, trial in, in my life and for my family, I appreciate it. Yeah, brother. Well, uh, we'll we'll remember to pray for you and mm -hmm. just encourage our listeners to uh, to remember to pray for you also. Yep. yep. All right. Appreciate that. Well, let's uh, let's shut it. I'm about to cut this into a two parter. I think. I think this is going to be a two parter. This is a this is a, this is a jumbo jumbo <laughs> size. For real, right? Yeah. Thanks for listening today to Conform to Christ podcast and I guess video cast, whatever they call that today, vodcast. Who knows? Who knows what they call it, George? <laughs> Names change all the time. But thanks for listening. Hopefully, this was, uh, you know, this, I don't know how encouraging it would be. Hopefully, it's encouraging as we work through the Bible, it was encouraging to you. You know, it's our hope and our desire to, to discuss a variety of topics. The end result, hopefully, is to engage the mind, affect the heart, and call people to follow Christ. So hopefully this helped you with that. If it has encouraged you and helped you in that regard, please give us a like, uh, a subscribe, share. Maybe write us up on iTunes or something like that that helps us to be found by other people. Uh, same thing on YouTube. And share with your friends. So our hope is always this helps you to become more and more conformed to Christ. Thanks.